Hey, I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Nadia DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandell. Hi, this is Lee Bermeon. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 76. Welcome to the new DC. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... This is Donovan. This is Joe. And making his appearance for the first time on the Batman Universe Comic Podcast and the ongoing co-host for the Comic Podcast is... This is John. And joining us for this special episode, because we are discussing Batgirl number one, is none other than Batgirl the Oracles. Stella! Hey, guys. So, we have a total of five books to cover, some books that you wouldn't even expect us to be covering, like Justice League and Flashpoint, but because this is the new DC, we are going to be covering these two issues on this podcast, as well as Batwing, Batgirl, and Detective Comics, since those are the only books that have been released as we record this podcast. In addition, we are covering the news from August 28th through September 10th, and we have bad books for beginners as usual but let's start off with comic news legend tells of a caped crusader batman guardian of new gotham and his one true love catwoman the queen of the criminal underworld their passion left behind something extraordinary a daughter huntress half metahuman she has taken up her father's mantle and fights to protect the innocent and helpless on august 29th paul jenkins talked with comic book resources about taking over for david finch on batman the dark knight so in for this interview i will read for comic book resources and donovan will read for paul jenkins is issue number two the first dark knight issue you're writing or are you writing issue number one onwards from the september relaunch it's issue number one. Understand, it's part of the job. We have a responsibility to the people that we're doing contracts with. I had a contract with Marvel, so the timing of me coming on to Dark Knight number one and the ending of my contract were kind of close, so I couldn't be listed on the first solicitation because of that reason. Having said that, yes, I wrote the first issue, so I've been on board since the first one. You said that there are big themes you are trying to hit in Batman the Dark Knight. What are some of those themes? The first arc we're doing is really about fear. It's about what happens when fear enters your life. Here's this guy who, who had his fair share of it over the years. He sees it manifesting all around him, and it leads to him question. Wow, what does it mean to me that I've been afraid? Everyone undergoes it, and it's a portion of Batman that feels that these things have to be fear. So we get this big theme that kind of runs through, and it's around our sixth or seventh issue, he really begins to understand what is happening, and how do you approach fear, and how do you beat fear? At the same time, we have a lot of subplots. We have this really cool new character we've been bringing into the book. That's big for our story. At the same time, we have another subplot where Gordon's getting undermined by this guy from the previous Dark Knight story. So we're bringing in all these themes and continuing them through. We've got a couple of stories laid out, and this time next year, we'll probably be working on a really big theme that comes back into the Batman universe. We've got long-term plans. I think people would really be happy to hear that. So does that mean the comic will go back to being a monthly comic starting in September? Absolutely, it will be. Obviously, I couldn't go to San Diego this year because of the little one, but Dave told me he fielded a lot of questions. Is the book going to be on time now? Are you going to come out with it regularly? The answer is absolutely yes. 
at the moment, against the publishing schedule, were really beginning to pick up speed. I think the readers were frustrated a bit. That's why they asked so many times. We didn't get all these books in the can before. What's there to think we would be able to do that now? What there is that he doesn't have the two or to three weeks it took Tim to write an issue. So I know the schedule is going to be a hit this time. That's the end of that interview. I, for one, I am happy that Paul Jenkins will be writing a little bit more of this interview that we didn't actually post on the site. Talked about some of the reasons behind him coming on board. A lot of it had to do with the fact that despite all the multiple reasons that we've heard about David Finch having trouble keeping this book on time, it really came down to he was spending about two to three weeks writing the issue and then, you know, you know, maybe a month drawing the issue. So that's why it fell so far behind was because it was taking him maybe a month and a half to do an issue that was supposed to be coming out every month. So clearly that's what's going to happen when you've got that situation. The one thing that kind of somewhat worries me is that he makes a point to say that there's a number of themes from the past series as well as new themes that they're going to be kind of running with and continuing on with and I'm really hoping the themes aren't as strong as they were in the first five issues of Batman the Dark Knight because as everyone knows I wasn't a huge fan of the series in general but the important thing is that I think that there was too much in the book and I really hope that Paul Jenkins figures out a way to kind of even it out across the board. I have faith in Paul Jenkins as a writer I will say that it seems, though, that a lot of writers in these books, these new books, are going to be using fear as an element. Like, I know, I think Scott Snyder said that at some point Gotham will scare Batman or whatever. And we'll talk about Barbara Gordon's dealing with her fear of what happened to her in the past. So I think that this is not really a unique theme to this title. It just depends on how these individual writers will approach it. So I, I do wish him luck on that. I had a chance to check out some of Paul Jenkins' work, and it's pretty good. So I think, very least, he'll improve the series. Not that it's going to be that hard to do, but I think he'll probably do quite a decent job. And I think, am I right in saying he mentioned in an interview somewhere that he didn't actually read any of David Finch's work? If he didn't, he's smart. <laughs> Which, if that's the case, then hopefully he will take it in a completely fresh direction. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm kind of hoping this is an entirely new book with Paul Jenkins doing the writing and that it takes us like five or six steps up in the quality. So then the next bit of news we have comes on September 5th. Tony Daniel talked with IGN about Detective Comics and what it, what it's kind of like to be relaunching Detective Comics after the 70 plus years that the series has been around. So... I'll read for IGN, and Joel will read for Tony Daniel. The cover for issue number one displays the Joker quite prominently. Should we expect Detective to hold the Clown Prince of Crime's introduction into the new DCU? And how, if at all, is your iteration of the Joker different from what's come before? The first issue has a lot of the Joker in it, but there's a bigger story, and we'll find at the end of issue one, we've only just peeled back one layer of multi-layered crime story. My take on Joker sort of merges Grant Morrison's and my interpretation from R.I.P. with more of a classic Joker. We hit the ground running, so we won't see this as a new introduction to the Joker. We still get the sense of Batman is still learning what makes this guy tick. What can you tell us about this new villain, the Dollmaker, and the threat he poses to Batman in Gotham City? Dollmaker is, is new to Gotham, and he's come here to make a name for himself. He has a history with Commissioner Gordon and a, and a vendetta to fulfill. This maniac and his family of helpers like to make dolls out of their victims. They create the ultimate collectibles. 
They're truly a disturbed bunch who really could use some rehabilitation inside Arkham Asylum. On the flip side, they donate their victims' organs to the black market to save lives. The solicitation for issue 2 also suggests a new romantic interest for Bruce Wayne. Where have his romances failed him in the past, and is there really any room for a relationship with this life as Batman? Well, we're early in here on when Batman even exists, so naturally we're at a point where Bruce still might have hope for some sense of normalcy, when he's not breaking kneecaps as the Dark Knight. Her name is Charlotte Rivers, and she's an investigative reporter who challenges Bruce Wayne. And Bruce Wayne is a challenge for her, and seeing that she's a smart cookie, she knows there's more than meets the eye with her lover. But it makes good drama and conflict to see how a, rom a romantic relationship tries to work out with all of the odds stacked against it, forcing to fight for its survival. So that is the end of that interview. A couple of things. Uh, number one... I know that one of the main things that's happening in a lot of the Batman books is they're introducing a number of new villains, and I'm okay with that, but I think the, the idea that Tony Daniel just laid out for the Dollmaker, oh, well, this character is a character that is coming to Gotham to make a name for themselves. Is there anywhere else in the world that any villain actually goes to try to make a name for themselves besides Gotham City? Because, quite honestly, it just seems like that's always the case. There's new villains that pop up in other places as well, but dealing with the Bat books specifically, it just seems a little ridiculous that everybody always ends up going to Gotham City, and crime doesn't happen anywhere but Gotham City, according to at least the way these writers are doing it. The other thing that really bothers me is Tony Daniels' response to the romantic interest. His, the first sentence of his response says, Well, we're early in here on when Batman even exists. So naturally, we're at a point where Bruce still might have an hope for some sense of normalcy when he's not breaking kneecaps as the Dark Knight. What? What does that even mean? How? What is he saying? He's saying that Detective Comics and Batman and Bruce Wayne as Batman is early on his in his career as Batman? Did Tony Daniel not get the memo that all the Bat books are continuing on with the timeline that they're supposed to be and they're not going back and starting from year one? I don't even understand what that response can mean. How is it that Damien could possibly be popping up in the series, but yet this is early on in Batman's career of him even existing, so there's still a chance that he could have a romantic relationship? Oh, man. What, what is going on? That's all I got. <laughs> I think we'll actually talk about that, or at least I will have more things to say about it when we have Detective in our direct mindset when we're doing the reviews. But that was very, very puzzling, to say the least. And at least they had the supposed excuse that this is in the past for Bruce Wayne to have another love interest. Because I remember the last few months on this podcast, we were, like, complaining that they were shoving all these women in Batman's past and presence for him to get with, and it was just too much. So I suppose that, that it's fair game now. I don't, whenever I read Detective, I really did get a feeling like this was a younger Batman. I know that recent events with Incorporated and R.I.P. are supposed to be intact, and a lot of his events in, you know, in the general outline of his history are supposed to be there, but whenever I was reading Detective, I definitely felt like it was a younger Batman, a less experienced Batman, and I guess we're just going to have to see if, if the other Batman books agree with that, or if it's just a Tony Daniel thing. I definitely agree with John there, because when I was reading it, I felt that he was more of a rookie closer to year one than, than he was a seasoned veteran. So this interview definitely made more sense to me. And since you do only get one, I am excited at least that there may be some shipping action between Charlotte and Bruce. All right. So the next thing we've got is on September 6th, Gail Simone talked with Comic Book Resources about her work on Batgirl. So 
For this interview, I will read for comic book resources, and Stella will read for Gail Simone. Let's start with Batgirl. Since you've written Babs' Oracle for so many years, how do you approach writing her under the cowl? Is Barbara Gordon Batgirl a fundamentally different person than Barbara Gordon Oracle? It's a bit of a conflict between two overriding personal themes I have as a writer in a shared universe, actually. First, I prefer not to negate. I don't like to say this story never happened, even if it's a story I loathe. I would prefer to build on what came in the past, and turning back the clock somewhat is definitely the opposite of that. But on the heroic idea, I have a contrasting belief that these characters have survived for a reason, which is that something in them is truthful and resonating. There's a reason why Spider-Man is still the best Spider-Man-esque character, and a million imitators don't quite match him. And because the core is so solid, so made of stone, you can pull the characters, you can paint them, you can redecorate and play dress-up and accessorize, you can change the background, and the core remains. I was speaking with Phil Jimenez about this yesterday, and we both feel that the characters have facets, that there's a core ideal, and it's our job to explore the sides that are exposed at any given time. I'm enjoying writing Batgirl at this stage in her life. She's younger. She doesn't know everything. She's been immersed in school and her life plan. Events conspire to change that plan, and she's nervous about that. I love writing Barbara under pretty much any conditions, but this really is a key time for her. Batgirl has been a hero whose villains have pretty much been either Batman villains or incredibly similar to Batman villains. Are you planning to create a brand new group of rogues for Babs to fight tailored to her, specifically as Batgirl? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a good several issues before we see a familiar face on a villain. She's got two killer villains right up front, Mirror and Gretel, both of whom have a different resonance with what she is going through. Along those lines, how involved will the Bat family be with Babs? Will we see Dick Grayson and Bruce swooping in, or are you trying to set this up as Batgirl on her own, doing her own solo adventures? Nightwing plays a big role in issue 3, Batman in issue 4. These are Batgirl adventures, but it's just too much fun not to see those two react to her sudden reappearance. Alright, so that is the end of that interview. I am going to withhold any comments until we do our reviews of Batgirl number 1. I am of the same opinion, however I will state that it is interesting that she says that Bruce and Dick will be reacting to Barbara's appearance as Batgirl, but... Like you, I will withhold all comments about this title until we review the book. The only thing I want to pull out of this interview is that she mentions what Barbara's been doing lately. The only thing she mentions is school. And I'll follow up on that when we get to the Batgirl book. <laughs> GD! Uh, yeah, uh, well, I see some conflict, I guess. not Conflict's not the, really the right word. But uh, between things she said before and things she's saying in this interview, especially the she doesn't know everything. When we've been told previously that she is the smartest member of the Bat family, so I, I was drawn to that comment. And the other thing, bringing in Nightwing and Batman seems really familiar to when Steph was first introduced as Batgirl because she had to run the gauntlet to be approved by not only Barbara, but Nightwing, who was then Batman at that time. So I wonder if Barbara has to again prove herself, so that will be interesting to see. So the next interview we have comes from September 7th. This one was with, again, with Tony Daniel, talking about Detective Comics, but this time he's talking with MTV Geek, and a little bit a little bit different questions this time, and a little bit, obviously, different answers. So I will read for MTV Geek, and John will read for Tony Daniel. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you say you're doing one, done-in-one stories at this point, or is it shorter arcs? 
They are shorter arcs, like three issues. My first arc is four issues, but the first issue is really a jumping on point for a bigger story that sort of begins in issue two. Most of my stories are going to be three issues or so. I'm going to try to stay away from big four or five issue arcs. Just because I think that it can be kind of taxing for a reader to commit almost half a year to one storyline. I think with today's marketplace, you have to tell your best story in as little time as possible. Because these are comic books, and economy is time. You have to tell your story and get people in and out with it and start the next adventure. What's happening in the first detective arc, then? We see something very, very strange happen to the Joker in issue one. And that leads Batman to discover that there's someone around the corner that he was previously unaware of. There's a new villain in town that goes by the name The Dollmaker. And he really has a whole crew of cohorts and people that work with him. They're insane. They're right up there with the Joker. His main story is discovering what they're all about and how he's going to handle a new serial killer in town that he knows nothing about. Looking forward, how much do you have planned out? I'm planning out for about a year's worth of books. We have plenty of stories to tell. And so far, it's about figuring out how to break up how long each story arc is going to be. Hopefully, when we hit the 12-month mark, Hopefully we'll have something big, maybe a larger story for that. Maybe a tie-in with another bad book to mark the one-year anniversary. But I'm planning on being on at least a year, and actually most likely two years at this point. Even though I haven't planned for the second year, I am planning for a special issue that's coming out sometime in 2013. So that's the end of that interview. There's a couple things that don't make any sense. The first thing is he hasn't planned anything for a second year, but he's planning a special issue that comes out in 2013, which would be... That would be like a year and a half into it, so that would be for year two. So I I don't understand how he can say that he has this special issue planned, but at the same point, he hasn't planned anything for the second year. Anyway, he's clearly confused in some aspects. The other thing that's that's kind of interesting is that he made the comment about, you know, his story arcs, he only wants, he wants to stick with, you know, three issues. Because prior to this, he did say in numerous interviews leading up to... September that he was looking to do done in one stories because he thought that he could tell better stories in done in one and he didn't want to do a lot of story arcs because he seemed he he said himself that it seemed like sometimes it just felt like he had to make that last and that and what he was saying with oh well I want to tell these simple detective stories in the issues made it seem like what DC said with oh well we're not really telling our writers hey we've got to do this because it'll make sense and it'll be able to easily be put together for a trade paperback. And Dan DiDio said, well, it's not its not the writer's job to figure out how to trade it. It's the editor's job. That's their job to figure out how to get it into a trade. If it's one issue, two issue, three issue story arcs, let it be whatever the writer wants. Let the writer tell the story. But this seems to be the beginning of the turnaround of the fact that this is not necessarily completely true because... Why did he say for so long, Tony Daniel, that is, say for so long that he was doing done-in-one issues, and then now he's going back and then saying he wants to do three-issue story arcs, and what's interesting is that he made the comment, oh, well, this is actually going to be much less than what I've done in the past, because in the past, I've done much larger story arcs, yes, and every single one of them were horrible, because you either forgot about story elements, or you misplaced story elements for many, many months, because you had so much going on in the six-month story arc that you had going on. Whatever. I, you know, Done in One issues would have been a lot better. I think could have worked a lot better for him. But, you know, I guess well, he'll reap what he sows. That's what I'm going to say. I'm a bit disappointed to hear that because 
like Dustin said, I think Tony Daniel would do better writing one-and-done stories because he does tend to get a bit lost. He tends to introduce too many characters. Having said that, I did enjoy issue one of Detective Comics, but hearing that news about he's started threads for a big story arc later on, that does get me a bit worried that it's going to turn once again into a massive... 12-part epic or something like that. I want to think that they have the leash held pretty tight on the 12-part epics, that those are not in the plans for anyone. I am glad what he said about the first issue, because it really did feel like a prelude to another story, not the part one of a story. But we'll talk more about that with the the actual reviews. Sometimes I find one-and-done issues to be jarring. If not done properly, it just really seems like a start and stop sort of situation and I had been reading Cassandra Kane issues this morning and they were perfectly fine if there was just one issue arcs but I think there is a happy median I haven't really been following Tony Daniels work but I think there is a happy median between one and done and longer issues if three works for him I guess we'll find out but if not maybe he should revert back or in this case, revert to. Right, yeah. Yeah, revert, yeah, I meant back as in back to like a, a smaller number, so one and done. Yeah, yeah I got what you're saying. <clears throat> so the next interview we've got is on September 7th. Gail Simone talked with IGN again about Batgirl. So again, for this interview, we will be treated to Stella reading for Gail Simone, <laughs> and I will read for IGN. We know that Barbara is fresh out of college and prepared to make her way in the world. Will you be dealing with her life outside of being Batgirl? Absolutely. Jim Gordon plays a significant role, as well as, well, some other notorious Gothamites. And she's got some new friends. And she's dating for the first time in a while. And it turns out she's terrible at it. Again, it's weird that Barbara Gordon, one of the most loved females in comics, has never had her own ongoing series. I get that B.O.P. was hers, but I always saw that as a team book. Recently, Barbara played a large part in the Stephanie Brown Batgirl series. While we've gotten a hint here or there, do you have any interest in rekindling that relationship or integrating past Batgirls like Stephanie Cascane into other series? When the relaunch was announced, a lot of readers naturally became concerned about their favorite characters. And we sort of responded badly by saying they were benched, which I think gave the wrong impression, like they'd be forgotten. Steph and Cash shouldn't be benched. They've earned their place and are great characters. So I said, don't be surprised if no one else uses them if they show up in Batgirl. But thinking about it and hearing from so many Steph and Cass fans, I think they deserve better than occasional guest shots. Some other writers agree, can't say too much, but the hope is to get them both unbenched soon. That's the end of that interview. I specifically included that question about Steph and Cassandra Kane because I think that is one of the main concerns that a lot of people, including myself, have had. Cassandra Kane's kind of been benched, this, I guess the definition of bench ever since <laughs> her miniseries came out, which was still pretty bad, so then she was benched till even before that, which was the end of the Batgirl series, which I believe was in 2009, so quite some time. Yeah, she's done some, sh- you know, sh- she's shown up here and there, but for the most part, she was still doing just really guest shots, and that miniseries really didn't play into what was going on at the current times for Batman, so I can't say that she hasn't been unbenched since the end of her series. With Stephanie Brown, the I think the problem is that Stephanie Brown had a, a, num- a huge fan base, and for them to completely 
do this switcheroo and make Barbara Gordon Batgirl, you know, that's okay, but you take this character who has a fan base who you've given two years to really get fans really excited about the character and just say, eh, she's not coming back. And yes, they did respond badly because they did say that they were going to be benched in whatever way they, they meant that. The reality is that these characters still, we have no idea what's going on. We've been told that Stephanie Brown will appear as spoiler, but not directly told that. So, again, it's, it's okay, so we build these, these characters up. Cassandra Kane was built up even longer because her series had over 70 issues. So it's one of those things where, you know, we put a lot of, they, they invest a lot of time and effort into these characters only to basically say, okay, well, we really can't do anything more with you, so we'll see you in the back. Look, Gail Simone has very, very, very clearly good intentions where it comes towards the fan base. I think she's been the only writer who has been, like, saying that we are listening to the fans' complaints and concerns. We are listening. Believe us, we are listening. And really, I'm not putting any of the, the, the most recent history of Stephanie Cassandra at her feet at all because, you know, she's nothing to do with that. I, just reading this, just hearing this interview, it just seems as though she has very little she can say because I would imagine that, like, for the next year to two years, we won't see hide nor hair of the other Batgirls. I'll be very, very shocked if we did. That's not really specific towards her run with this new Batgirl title. It's more specific towards the relaunch as a whole and basically how DC likes to treat characters that aren't legacy characters. But uh, I'll digress. Yeah, again, you'll, you'll hear a lot more about it in the review section. Yeah, I was excited at first to hear the potential for Stephanie and Cassandra getting their own series and things like that in the future. But I have reason to believe that Gail Simone doesn't know the inner workings of DC quite as much as she'd like us to believe. So I think this is either just not true or it's something Gail Simone just wants to happen. See, I think it's one of those things where, like Don said, Gail Simone, can, she listens to the fans, but in, as, as she has shown, she doesn't always listen to what's going on at DC. She spends too much time listening to the fans and not enough time referring what she's hearing from the fans to what's happening at DC and to the people at DC. And, I mean, she said she's had conversations about having bringing those other characters back, but who were those conversations with? Were they with anyone that really mattered at DC? And what was their opinion of the conversation versus Gail's? Were they just, you know, just chatting to, to toss out ideas, or were they actually exploring plans? We just don't really know what all is really going on here. One thing that hasn't made clear, though, since the new 52 lineup was announced is that they do have plans for other series beyond these 52 that they just chose not to announce at the beginning and to, to bring out later. You know, we have Shade, we have the JSA, and we talked in the special about Power Girl, Bad Books that we haven't started up yet. So there, there's lots of down the, stuff down the pike. But would a spoiler ongoing series sell? I mean, you don't... You have the cult following, but it doesn't have the same appeal, I would think, to the wider masses as a Batgirl book would might might have. Yeah, and just going off of that comment, I think it absolutely depends on what the characterization of spoiler spoiler is like. Because she had grown so much as a character as Batgirl, and if we're reverting back, is she going to be kind of that gray ghost-esque annoying character that we were encountering so i i don't know about that but that that definitely that comment about Cass and steph was my focus there and 
I think I can reveal this at least because she slipped it that she has been in talks with Brian Q. Miller on a project, but that's really all that she revealed. And of course, when you think of Brian Q. Miller, you automatically think Stephanie Brown. So we're hoping, obviously, that that's what it is. But if she were to only be the person to take on the reins of Stephanie or Cassandra, I would be a little concerned, mainly because of how Batgirl number one went down. So, ooh, yeah. Don't but, you know, stay away, for, stay away from my Cassandra. Yeah, I know, right? So, <clears throat> but I guess it's better to hear that Steph and Cassandra have a future rather than seeing Misfit, who really I don't care about seeing ever again. So, those are my thoughts. The last interview we have is with Judd Winnick, and he talks about Batwing with IGN. For this interview, I'll read for IGN, and Don will read for Judd Winnick. As a part of Bruce Wayne's Batman Incorporated initiative, what role will the original Batman be playing in Batwing's series? Batman is Batwing, Batwing's David Zanvimbi's benefactor. Less of a mentor, more of a boss. Batwing is a franchise of Batman Inc., but Batman mostly lets David find his own way. The story is an evolving story. We begin with a lot of roaring action and the details of who Batwing is and how he came to be unfold later. We didn't want to try and blast him out of the gate and spill everything about him. We felt that after a few issues, the readers will have gotten to know him. But the story that gets us there itself is really gripping, emotional, and horrifying. Will we see the evolution of the man behind the mask and how he came to be part of the Bat family? Yes. Again, it's rolled out bit by bit. Batwing was a crime fighter before he became Batwing, and it's a dark origin. He's a Batman, so it's not an easy road that led him to becoming someone who takes off into the night and hunts criminals. And then we'll tell the tale of when Batman brings him into the fold. All right, so that is the end of that interview. There really wasn't a lot of information given during this interview. What was what was interesting was this interview posted after the first issue was already released. And what makes it interesting is the fact that he makes a point to say, oh, well, he was a crime fighter before, but we see that in Batwing number one. So not that I, I guess he's just trying to promote the series for those people who didn't read it out there even before and after the the, the batwing number one came out this really doesn't really reveal too much that will we will we see his origin yes will we find out how he met Bruce Wayne Batman yes and it will be dark I mean I mean I suppose there's not much you can say but really I blame IGN like there's there's an internet joke around that you can't spell ignorant without IGN and seriously like those questions were like not really of much substance all right, so that is all of the comic news. Not a lot of news, I'm sure, as we move into the next podcast as well as the next two weeks. We'll hear more news related to the actual series that are being released in the next two weeks. But that is all we have for this episode. So let's go into our comic book reviews. And the very first book we have is Flashpoint number 5. <laughs> Flashpoint number five, the final issue of the event written by Jeff Johns of art by Andy Hubert. The issue starts off with the confrontation between Flash and the reverse Flash. Barry, of course, wants to know what Thorne has done to change the world so drastically, but as Thorne is so gleeful to tell him, it turns out that Barry is the villain of this event after all. Only too happy to remind him, Thorne, painfully, resets Barry's internal vibrations. This causes Barry to see his own past, a time that, when he was so full of anguish, he stopped Thorn from killing his mother. This caused a ripple in time which disrupted the lives of so many whilst leaving Thorn unaffected. As Barry and Thorn fight, 
Thorn monologue, how he's now an anomaly, how he exists outside of any timeline, how he can kill Barry, but Barry could never hurt him. A short shh later, and Thorn stands there with a blade erupting from his chest, having been run through with the sword by Batman, just before giving the one line of the issue. Meanwhile, that Amazonian-Atlantean war rages on, but it's not long before the resistance show up. But Enchantress, who sided with Wonder Woman, won't go down without a fight. But she does go down, when Superman flies down from the sky and crushes her into the earth. Superman then goes on to defeat the armies, taking down Aquaman and Wonder Woman, as the earth begins to crack in two. Barry's memories once again start to realign, and he starts to forget what he has to do. But calling him over, Thomas reminds him, as well as giving Barry a note to give to Bruce. With this, Barry runs. However, as he approaches the time barrier, and with his mind so focused on his mother, he is drawn to her, allowing him to have one last conversation and a goodbye with her, before he has to go to stop himself saving her life. As Barry does this, we see the melding of the DEC properties, as well as the first image of a woman we're sure to see lots of in the future. And with that, we're back to the beginning, with Barry asleep at his desk. We then cut to the Batcave, where Barry visits his best friend, he talks about what happened, what he did, and how the issue ends with Barry giving Bruce a note and Batman crying. The end. Flashpoint number five. I have to start off by saying I did not think this issue was nearly as good as the first four issues. It's It really seemed like they were trying to wrap this up in a real quick hurry. That's not to say that the issue didn't accomplish its goals, because I definitely think it did accomplish its goals, but I think... The problem was that there was just a lot of things that they resolved so quickly. There was a lot of things that happened in the miniseries that really didn't have any sort of conclusion. Not When I say miniseries, I'm talking about all the other Flashpoint miniseries that were kind of supposed to add to the universe. And the problem was that a lot of the miniseries didn't really end with the, like a finish. It was almost like, okay, we're headed to this event that's taking place in Flash, in the Flashpoint main series, but then we never really, really got any resolve from that. The timing of some of those miniseries also didn't make a lot of sense in, as far as what was going on in Flashpoint as well. The Flashpoint event as a whole, I think, was pretty interesting, and I, I found it to be quite good, but Flashpoint number five, I just think, kind of fell a little flat for me. There was a lot of explanation of exactly how everything was happening, because it was like, well, we don't have a lot of time to to really make it make it obvious of why this is happening we have to explain it using dialogue and sometimes that can be annoying the art seemed rushed as well uh, i don't think the art was nearly as good as the last couple issues and i think that was the because of the addition of the extra inker and i'm wondering if that was because of time constraints that that occurred the ending I, i've read a lot of things online about oh well it's so out of character for batman to be crying oh batman never cries why would he be crying you know, the thing with that is, if I was Batman, and I was orphaned while I was a child, and I grew up to be Batman, the first thing that would be my concern would be, you know, I'm doing this because of what happened to my parents, so that another child doesn't lose their parents and be in the same situation and be an orphan. That's why I would be doing it. So the, f I would want to know that what I'm doing with my life, in memory of my parents, is actually honoring my parents. So to receive a letter from an alternate universe from my father who 
who clearly lived and knows what I became, and to tell me that he is extremely proud of what I'm doing, I'd freaking tear up. I, you can be the hardest person in the world, and you cannot say that you would not tear up. And for all those people online who are saying, oh, it's completely out of character, you're lying to yourself, because that, that's exactly what would happen. And You may never see Batman cry, but if it dealt with his parents, I'm sure he would. So I think the ending was, was, was pretty good, and I like the inclusion of, of Bruce Wayne Batman at the end of Flashpoint. So overall, I'm going to give this 3.5 out of 5 Batarangs. I never had a problem with Batman crying. In fact, I think that in an era where we're getting a lot of really crazy out-of-moment characters and just bonker moments, like such as the Whiting Guy and everything, I thought this is one of those things that actually made a whole lot of sense. I mean, th- if anything would make Batman cry, it would be this. I think other stuff would, but I, I liked it. And I actually like Andy Kubert's one of my favorite DC Comics artists, and I really thought he did a good job here. I just enjoy seeing his art everywhere. I've not followed the Flashpoint series all the way through. I, I mainly just read the Night of Vengeance miniseries. But one thing that did make this easier to go down is that I happen to have bought and read the Return of Barry Allen story from like the 90s by Mark Wade, where we get like the origin of the reverse Flash, Eobard Thawne. And that actually makes it a lot easier for me to just kind of realize, okay, what's going on here? Because when he's, t- when he's talking about how he exists, no matter what happens to Barry Allen... It's kind of confusing unless you don't know the history about that character. So I actually I kind of liked how the exposition was, where it wasn't too much, but it was just enough that if you just know the history, you can kind of hang on. I, I actually kind of like the idea that like Flash going back in time permanently affects the entirety of the DC universe. I actually think that's a pretty cool story. I like the fact that they did that rather than a spawning crisis level story. So the, I didn't read the whole series, but this issue kind of made the change all right in terms of a continuity standpoints. So overall, I'll give this four out of five batterings. Uh, this was a book for me that I had to reread a few times to fully appreciate. And what little issues I had with it did seem to disappear each time I read it. And I, I really felt like this was pretty much the perfect way to flow from the old DC universe to the DC new, especially with Barry Allen, who brought on, you know, or finished the Crisis on Infinite Earths and stuff. So it's he seems to be a constant in the DC Universe evolving. The art, for me, ranged from good to fantastic. I really think Hubert, he really needs Sandra Hope to really push his work to the maximum. And I think the best example of that is comparing page 12 to page 13. And speaking of page 12, Hubert can really draw the hell out of Etrigan. And on page 11, in the top right-hand panel, Batman's belt is coloured wrong. Not one to point fingers, but I noticed that. The big issue like Dustin said that most people seem to have with this was Batman crying at the end what Melinda from the normal cast pointed out to me (laughs) which fully justifies any preconceptions about oh Batman wouldn't do this Batman Batman wouldn't cry and stuff like that and I give full credit to Melinda because I didn't spot notice this at all I didn't read it like this but when Batman gets the note he pulls down his cowl when he cries so in this instance instead of it being Bruce Wayne is the mask for Batman it's Bruce Wayne is the man who lost both of his parents as a child and he's not hiding behind Batman he's not hiding behind anything he's just reading that and really thinking about his parents like Dustin said if if anyone had lost their parents and then got something like that they would obviously burst into tears I gave this a 4.5 on the site, but rereading it and with that 
sort of thought about Batman. I'm actually going to bump this up to a five out of five, and I really thought that ending was phenomenal storytelling. I remember reading this and enjoying it whenever I read it through the first time, but then whenever I finished, I was kind of left with, is that it? Kind of feeling. There's a whole lot of punchy, punchy talk talk at the beginning, just just exposition while they're wrestling with the lightnings, and it, it it's information that you need to make the whole sense of the story to work out, but at the same time, it also takes up a lot of pages. I loved the death of Reverse Flash that Batman just drove a sword through the guy. You know, you don't get that kind of finishing satisfaction in, in, in the ends of your supervillains very often. I, I did like that. I, I have a hard time buying that Flash saving his mom altered the universe as far as we saw. When I was at San Diego and everyone was asking questions about how the continuity of Flashpoint world works, they kept on saying, read Flashpoint 5, read Flashpoint 5, and now that I have Flashpoint 5, I, I still don't get it. I do think that the appeal of the Flashpoint miniseries, the, the core spine of the, of the, of the event, what, I think the appeal of that actually lies in all these satellite titles because the, the main storyline of Flashpoint is not really that complex, but but you know it's all right. I I'm not saying it's a bad story. It's it's it felt like it was kind of needed more. The the two page spread with the universe is changing. I really dug because you have Flashpoint world, you have pre Flashpoint, you have post Flashpoint, all there together, and the mysterious hooded woman that I'm surprised hasn't gotten mentioned yet. It, it's just it's a nice piece of art. And I do like that Barry Allen, as he's running in the very last pose, he's post-Flashpoint Barry Allen. So he's actually gone, undergone a change to this whole thing himself. The, the ending scene with Batman made the book for me. I have not really read a whole lot of reviews on this issue. I didn't realize people were saying it was out of character. I think that people who don't understand that if you get a letter from your dead father who's approving your life and get and like putting a stamp of pride on what you're doing, that's going to tear you to shreds. And anyone who doesn't understand that doesn't understand. I mean, I, I just, I would question their own relationship with their parents because it's, it's, that's like really significant pathos going on there. And I do like at the end how we see Batman and flash just being friends and, you know, kind of setting a tone we don't have any prison-day Justice League stories. We don't see how these people are getting along yet because the Justice League series is set in the past. I just like seeing Batman being friends with people instead of always being suspicious and putting up OMAC stuff. And Anyways, I like the issue. I want to give it a four out of five batterings. Well, I'm going to have to disagree with Dustin, which I don't know if that's a bad thing or a good thing. Who knows? Uh, but I thought this was probably one of the better of, of the five issues. In my opinion, I thought Flashpoint was about two issues too long. I think that this story could have 
definitely omitted some miscellaneous details and really focused on the bigger issues. But with that said, I think that this was a pretty good issue because the conflict finally reached the climax. But, you know, agreeing with Dustin, I think that it does definitely seem like it was just kind of thrown on us haphazardly. But, you know, here's Thrawn, and he's going to explain everything right before he dies. So that was really lucky for us readers. I really liked the emotional, <laughs> the emotional journey of Flash and the challenge, really, of the decision and the decisions that he had to make. And I thought it was also nice to have someone connect emotionally with Batman because I think Batman while there have been other characters you know that have lost a loved one it, it always seems like we really focus on him for uh, to be the the epitome of someone who has lost their parents in this tragedy and I, I just thought it was great to see Flash kind of be there with him during that time and I thought that those few pages were really great and I do also disagree with the people that I think that it was in character for Batman and and really showing his his heart and his loss at that point I wish some of the other characters could have received more characterization because really I think we only learn about Flash and Batman here and, you know, with a little bit about Cyborg. But I I thought there was a lot of potential, especially with Superman as well as others, but I guess sacrifices had to be made. I would give this 3.5 out of 5 batterings. Real quick, Joe, I got a question about this. In Flashpoint, I'm not familiar with Flash prior to Flashpoint, so... The whole explanation of, well, he decided to go back in time to, to make sure his mother didn't get killed. That's what caused this entire ripple of Flashpoint, correct? Uh, that's what we learned from issue five, yeah. Right, okay. So when he goes forward in time and stops himself from going back in time, how does that actually explain why there's a difference in the future DC Universe? Actually, that, that doesn't make any sense now that you mention it. Because Jeff Johns wrote it. Okay, well, good, because I'm going to bring that up then, because uh, I, I, I mean, thought I was missing something that I just didn't see. That's why I wanted to make sure I I, I think it's something about... If, if you look at it from a, a changing time, why would, in the first place, just stopping, you know, Thorn kill, or stopping Thorn killing your wife, why would that affect things like Batman and stuff. So perhaps just because he's gone back in time well, and stopped that, that I one see, thing. I, I can see that because, you know, yeah. there's the whole aspect of the butterfly effect, and I get that. My quite like, what, I'm, I, what I don't understand is, if you're looking at this from the perspective of, okay, in present time, he goes back and he decides to stop Thawne from killing his mother, okay? Yeah. That, in turn, causes Flashpoint, which changes the universe completely, and everything's changed. Fine. That's fine. The problem is that if he then goes from the Flashpoint universe back to the future, ha ha ha, and then stops himself from going back and causing Flashpoint in the first place, why does it then not go back to the same? Why is all of a sudden is the entire Justice League being you know re- redone and all of that? Because that all happened way before he ever went back in time to stop Thawne from killing his mother. Uh- the only way I could explain it, perhaps, is that even though he didn't change the future as far as stopping Thorn killing his mother, for those exact events to happen, you know, exactly in that sequence again, might still be changed just because it's history happening again, sort of repeating itself. If you you could look at it that way, I mean, he still possibly affected it even just by stopping himself, and perhaps that triggered some small thing that changes the timeline. There's also that 
whole smash page about that weird woman saying yeah you know, the universe like needs to be with the weird woman then yes yeah, so yeah. actually she's Barry's mom what was it something about like the universe has been split into three to weaken it and you need to unite them or something I think that all has more to do with the woman than it actually has to do with him altering the past. Yeah. Reverse Flash says something about how Barry changed time like an amateur, and it's possible that there's some sort of like shredding effect going on across like the dimensional, you know, tissue that holds everything together. So that even going back and undoing that, you know, it still happened. Like like Barry's mom said, this all still happened, even though, you know, we're undoing some things. So. Maybe things didn't get quite sewn up the way they should have done. Whatever. Yeah, that makes sense. And also, I mean, I did you any of you read the Reverse Flash one shot that came with it, the Flashpoint Reverse Flash one shot? I plan to, but I haven't yet. I, I think I need to reread it. But it what I got from that was it it was Thorn behind it all trying to affect it, unless that wasn't in the Flashpoint universe as such. But from what I read from that, it, it was all about. Her sort of uh, Thorn trying to change the universe and trying to sort of get rid of Barry without killing himself and stuff like that. But I think I need to reread that. The other thing is, yeah, I think Thorn should be dead now because you know he's saying he's outside of all time stuff like that. So if Batman killed him and he's outside he of time, he's not. He's not going to be. Re- he's not going to come back, is he? If if the timeline's sort of redone, because yeah. he's outside of time then he should be killed then and just stay dead, is what I read from it, but I'm not sure if that's, that's going to be I, That's what I got from it, too. So we'll see how long Francis Manipal keeps Reverse Flash out of... <laughs> you know, what they should have done is, like, have Barry go to where... I mean, did, I, don't, I didn't read the earlier issues. Did Barry, did Barry just running on the, on the Cosmic Treadmill change history, or did he, like, uh, like actively go back and, like, stop Thawne in a, in a different timeline? Because it, if he was... did... Go ahead. Oh, you never actually saw it. It was all just in that, that like, two pages of Reverse Flash going, Mwahaha, you are behind it all. Uh, it was, that was all you ever learned from it. Whatever no, happened, like Reverse that. Flash, I really feel like he had a hand in it. Because at the end of Time Masters and at the end of the main Flash series, Reverse Flash was definitely taking great glee in an effect that he seems to have caused making everything change. So I don't know exactly how all that happened and... Like I said, there, there there should have been more to the story. So then uh, over on the website, there was a number of reviews. I'm going to run through some of them. very first one was Dark Knight Dave gave the issue 5 out of 5. Swap Star gave it 0 out of 5. Melinda gave it 5 out of 5. And our newest comic book reviewer who does video interviews, which will be known as Comic Uno, gave it 3.5 out of 5 batterings. So it's going to give, out of 9 different reviews... Four out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, Justice League number one. In the great hall of the Justice League, there are assembled the world's four greatest heroes, created from the cosmic legends of the universe. Superman. Wonder Woman. Three 
junior super friends, Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog. Their mission, to fight injustice, to right that which is wrong, and to serve all mankind. The Justice League number one is set five years in the past of current post-Flashpoint modern DC universe-ness. Batman is chasing after something, some hulking monster in a hooded cape, and helicopters with machine gun lasers are chasing them both. Batman catches up to his monster. The monster, like, half explodes, but he's still okay. And then Green Lantern shows up and smashes the monster with a fire engine made out of Green Lantern goodness. Green Lantern didn't know that Batman was real, so he's kind of freaking out that this whole, like, rumor is standing right in front of him, and and Batman's kind of upset that Green Lantern's making all this light, because Batman's a dark knight. And they keep running away from the cops and after the monster, but the monster shoots them again with fire out of his mouth and transforms into, like, a... Well, they call it some sort of dog, but it looks like some sort of spider. I'm going to call this a parademon, even though I don't know that that's exactly what it is, just because I have to give it a name besides monster alien thing. So the parademon runs off down the street, leaving fire in its wake, and Batman and Green Lantern go after it. This whole time, Batman and Green Lantern are bantering. Green Lantern's talking about how he's so cool, and he's awesome, and he's Green Lantern, he has this new cool ring. And Batman's just like, "Uh uh-huh, let's get the bad guy. So they follow him into the sewers which is always fun. And Green Lantern realizes that Batman is just a guy in a bat cape until Batman swipes the ring off his finger without him realizing what's going on. And there's a bit of cool little banter there. The Parademon puts some sort of computerized explosive on the wall of the sewers and shouts for dark side and blows everything up. Green Lantern protects himself and Batman in a Green Lantern glowy safe vault scene. When they emerge, they look at the cubicle explosive, which actually didn't explode. It's still there. Uh, it looks like a thing out of the Hellraiser movies. But uh, it, I'm guessing it's a mother box. Anyway, they're not sure what it is. They think that it's alien. Green Lantern has just said that he works with thousands of other Green Lanterns all over the universe and that the Guardians know everything. When Batman says that the box is alien, they're like, oh, Superman's an alien. Maybe he knows something about it. So they decide to go to Metropolis. And along the way, we take a little segue to Victor Stone is in a football game. He's winning a touchdown. After the game, he has all these scouts who are wanting to hire him for the college ball, but his dad has to be there for the interviews, and his dad's a deadbeat loser who didn't show up. We then cut to the Green Lantern not invisible jet because it's this big green glowy light jet flying over metropolis batman's kind of upset that they were so visible but they land outside some sort of condemned building that lexcorp is going to tear down but lexcorp hasn't torn it down yet they've landed here because green lantern's ring has taken him to superman's like vital alien signature or whatever and they say they're going to handle superman and just then Superman shoots out of the building like a red-blue blurred bullet and the bowls over both Batman and Green Lantern. Batman looks up at Superman, who's now standing there with a come-and-get-me look on his face. He says, I don't handle easy, so what can you do? The issue ends with the next Superman versus Batman. All right, Justice League number one. I think that this issue is hyped a lot more than... 
than it played out to be. No I doubt. <laughs> I'm at a kind of a loss of words because I'm trying to think of exactly the best way to put this. The The writing was, was alright. The art was below average for normal Jim Lee. And I think it's only going to progressively get worse as time goes on because Jim Lee is not one to... Well, more recently, has not been known to keep a very good schedule when he's putting out stuff. And the fact that he's co-publisher means he will probably stick to his schedule, but that means ultimately his art will suffer more just because he's trying to actually stick to the actual schedule. There, there really wasn't a whole lot that happened. I mean, there was more that happened in the first few pages that we saw in the advanced preview of Justice League number one than there was actually in the rest of the issue. Yeah, we get we see a little bit of Cyborg before he's actually Cyborg. Superman shows up at the end, but for the most part, it was Green Lantern meets Batman and says, "Hey, let's go find Superman because we don't know what this is. It looks alien," and that's that's essentially what happened in the entire issue. I just summed it up in two three sentences. It just it did not live up to the hype that really DC made it out to be. Of oh, this is the first book of the new DCU, and. This is where it all begins, is right here in Justice League number one. Because guess what? We only saw, what, four characters out of the entire DCU? Where was Wonder Woman? Where was Aquaman? Where's all the other members of the Justice League? What, what the heck is going on here? Like, we have a Justice League book, and we start off with nothing but Batman Green Lantern, essentially a cameo from Superman, and Vic Stone before he's actually cyborg. <laughs> You would think that they would try to like really jumpstart it a little bit better than they did. By my opinion, this is coming out to be... This is, again, being written by Jeff Johns, who is notoriously known for writing stories that are collected very well in trade form, but not very well in single-issue form. And I think that's the biggest failure of Justice League, so I'm going to give it two and a half out of five batterings. Yeah, this comic, when it was released, there was so much hype about it. And it's almost crazy because, like, a lot has happened since then, and it's I've almost forgotten. But no, really, like, ever since this whole thing was announced, the cover to this comic was the first thing we got as to what this new 52 is going to be about with the new costumes and the team. And so this should have represented everything that they wanted to do with this new relaunch. They should have, like, blown the socks off of anybody who ever thought – who had ever never read a comic book, just destroyed all perceptions of what a comic book could be and just kind of pushed a format – because this is 2011, and technology has changed, modern sensibilities have changed, and this was supposed to bring in readers like it never has before. And from that standpoint, I'm not sure how new readers would adapt to this sort of like story. I have a friend who is trying to get into comics, and, he, and he's picking up a, he's picking up a number of these 52 comics. He's never read any of them before, and he's he liked it. He he thought it was pretty he thought it was pretty fun for what it was. So when I was reading this, I had to kind of look at it from a new reader perspective because if I look at it from my own personal perspective, I thought this was incredibly lacking. I actually think that Jim Lee's artwork is up to par here. I don't think he ever does a bad job. I love his art, and I, I love the coloring, the inking. It's, it's all top-notch, but like where the story is, this is, this is textbook decompressions, decompressed storytelling written for the trade and all of that. And I know that they said they were going to put, the, put that away with this new relaunch, but you don't get a sense of that here. And really, the whole issue doesn't feel like it's fun. I mean, it's it's not, it's good art and everything, but it's just a Green Lantern and Batman essentially not really bickering, but kind of just like poking at each other until they get to Superman where they get knocked over and Superman's about to say, bring it on. 
And I don't know. It's like you expect so much more out of not only a, a, an issue of comic of this magnitude that was supposed to bring in monumental numbers of readers, but just to just to restart the universe. And this doesn't feel epic. It just feels like a just like feels like another original origin story. I mean, and it's just on that level, it, it was, it's a, an incredible disappointment on its own merits. It's okay. It's kind of mediocre to be honest. But like, it's just. It should have been so much more than that. This just this was supposed to be awesome, and it wasn't. But if we're looking at it from its own merits and from a new reader's perspective, it's actually it's actually fairly decent. So I will, I will err on the more positive side of my feelings and give it a three out of five. Unfortunately, I can only really say this was fine. It read fast, but with a slow story beat, which I it's an odd combination. But I think it I think it comes a lot down to the fact we've already read six pages of it, but. When you actually look at the story, not much happens. The art by Jim Lee was art by Jim Lee, exactly what you'd expect. His art just doesn't really excite me, but I understand a lot of people love him, and, you know, that's fine. So he's probably a good person to get on the first book. I am looking forward to the next issue, but mostly because I want to see how these characters develop. It's difficult to switch off from what I already know about the first meeting of the Justice League and like both Dustin and Don were saying, it's difficult to read from a new reader's perspective. But I think it does it okay. I think it's fairly interesting what it does. I'm not sure I like the interpretation of Hal Jordan and I think a lot of the comedy in the issue was sort of misplaced or just stupid. Like Note to self, Batman, Green Lantern can handle anything. Stuff like that was really irritating to read. Having said that, the highlight of the book was definitely Batman stealing Green Lantern's ring. That did make me laugh. For what it's trying to achieve and what it did achieve, I'm going to give this a strong 4 out of 5. But as an issue that I read, I didn't really enjoy it that much. I think it's going to read a lot better in trade, like a lot of people have been saying. It was definitely a slow start. I like this book. I was excited to get it. I got it. got to read it before any of the people that I was talking to got to read it. So I felt special for like, you know, 10 minutes. But yeah, Batman is... He's not the arrogant one in this story. Uh, Green Lantern is. Green Lantern has his new toy. And he thinks it's really, really cool. And so he comes off as as a bit of a, a, a jerk because, you know, he can do anything he wants to with this ring, and, and, and that makes him really special. Whether that is how Jordan used to be portrayed or not, I realize it's kind of a departure. But at the same time, this is supposed to be looking at the beginning of the character. The beginning of how Jordan was in 1960-ish. So we're not going to get the same kind of uh, storytelling now that we did then. We're going to be able to, we have the opportunity to pull out new sides of his personality compared to what were being done back then. And I realize we've had Emerald Dawn and stuff since then and Secrets and Origins and everything else, but whatever. The story is definitely a part one of however many he's going to do. Three, four, five, six, we don't know. And, and I think that does work a little bit against it as the launch book. I don't think that this issue should have been the launch issue for that reason, and also because it's Justice League, but you only have two characters. Why are you launching your entire lineup 
with Justice League number one that doesn't have the Justice League in it. Of the books I've read so far, if I were, you know, the god of DC Comics, I would have put Action Comics up against Flashpoint 5 and had those be the two, you know, to transition this, uh, the, the universe over. I thought Action Comics was phenomenal. You know, it's kind of a beginning of the DC superhero line, so why not let that be your leader? But that's just me as a Superman fan. But yeah, I thought the book was good. I thought that its marketing worked against it. And I'm going to give it, I gave Flashpoint four batarangs, but I don't want to give this one five batarangs, so I'm just going to give it four. Solid story, it, but it didn't, like, you know, touch me emotionally like the end of Flashpoint five did, which, which got it the four. Okay, I have two pieces of advice for readers. The first piece of advice is if you're a veteran reader, you really need to separate yourself from what you know and approach this book as if you are a new reader. And for new readers, I think you're good to go. And the second piece is I suggest reading this comic two times. The first time that I read this issue, I was really upset. And it really could only be summarized in the quote, Batman, you're real. Uh, just just to think of someone saying that, especially Green Lantern, just rubbed me the wrong way. I just felt awful about this. But days later, I just continued to think about this comic and started to enjoy it just from like a distance. I read it again, and, and I think I really better appreciated it. I think it's a good start. It was nicely paced and got me interested enough to keep reading. And all of you weren't happy, or the majority, I guess, were not happy with not being introduced to the entire line of the Justice League. But I actually think this was a good idea because... Johns doesn't drown us in characters. We get to learn about a piecemeal of the team a little bit at a time because I started reading Justice League International and I just was not as interested because I thought, oh no, they're going to introduce all these characters and I'm supposed to care about them right off the bat. But a little bit at a time I think think is is good. Learning about just a few of them is probably less overwhelming. I think Batman was written the best. I think he had definitely the right voice, and I love some of the things he said and did, and I definitely agree with Joe that taking Green Lantern's ring was was awesome, and as well as slyly saying that he had studied Superman which I thought was such a Batman thing to do. Green Lantern has somehow become the new Guy Gardner, and I dislike Guy so much. He's, like, one of my least favorite DC comic characters. How was so annoying in his arrogance and his use of the third person? You know, when did I ask to read Caesar in this comic book? For those of you that don't know, Caesar always wrote in third person when he was writing his memoirs. Vic Stone's character I think has an interesting start. I'm glad that he's not cyborg yet, but his introduction reminds me of, sorry, Mary Jane in Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane because everyone sees her as someone who has everything, but of course she has problems just like everyone else, and, and you know, such is the case for Vic. But the only problem is this is not the Victor Stone show, so I'm wondering how much we can actually focus on this. And finally, I like that they're bringing in a big name uh, for the antagonist, i.e. Darkseid. And I thought the ending was really powerful, you know, just Superman bursting out and, you know, now what? And, and, and kind of pushing us to issue two. So I actually thought, out of all the books that we're going to review, that this one was the best. So sadly, I again, I have to disagree with Dustin. But I'm going to give this <laughs> 4.5 out of 5 batterings. I like what Stella oh, said about the Green Lantern, Guy Gardner versus Hal Jordan switcheroo. Mm-hmm. Because when I was reading this and whenever I read JLI, I got a very similar impression. I just didn't put it in those terms. Because Guy Gardner's confident and arrogant, but not 
jackassly so, whereas Hal Jordan is is pretty full of himself. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me as if Jeff Johns was writing... Ryan Reynolds. Ryan, Ryan Reynolds, exactly, yeah. Yes, Ryan Reynolds was the one in this book. That's exactly yep. it. Yep. It just depends on how many people who didn't read comics like that movie. <laughs> yep. DC knew who its you know big movie people were when they wrote this book because the biggest movies that DC's had in recent years have been Green Lantern and Batman. Well, that and I'm sure this book was being written right around the time that movie came out. Yeah. Before it didn't do awesome. Although it is funny, ever since Green Lantern really didn't do very well, Jeff Johns has kind of just, you know, <laughs> kind of disappeared from the, the public eye as much as he was before. I remember last year at San Diego, he was almost on every single panel. And this year, I think he was on just the one Justice League panel. And he gave the excuse of, oh, I'm moving this weekend. I'm not. <laughs> and it's bulldoze next day. <laughs> awesome. I, I can kind of believe that, except that he got on a plane and flew to San Diego. Over on the website, Comic Uno also gave the book four out of five batterings. So that is going to give Justice League number one a total of four out of five batterings. Let's move on to our next book, Batgirl number one. But five men against one girl is ridiculous. Oh, I'm enjoying this. Don't bother. Don't bother to return the many favors you've done for us, Batgirl. Mash em! Okay, Batgirl number one, writer Gail Simone, penciler Ardian Siaf, inker Vicente Cifuentes, colorist Ulysses Areola. The issue begins with a black-gloved hand holding a list with a name already crossed off. No, fellow friends, this is not Pretty Little Liars. As a figure, all clad in black, approaches an older man watering his garden, we discover that this black-clad figure is known as The Mirror. He opens up his garb, not sure whether he reveals a bunch of wrist watches or gives a peep show, freaks the older man, known as Mr. Carter, and then proceeds to drown Mr. Carter by shoving the water hose in his mouth. Another one gone, and another one gone, and another one bites the dust. We then see that Barbara Gordon is also on this list. A new scene shows us Batgirl atop a gargoyle using goggles which are detecting the heat signatures of a bunch of bad guys. In an internal monologue, we discover that she is not Barbara Gordon. Not tonight. Tonight, she is Batgirl. Inside the building which Batgirl was scoping out, we see a group of bad guys wearing masks that look like Boo from Mario. They are the Brisby Killers, and they enjoy home evasion and murder. Luckily for the Ortegas, their name was picked out of the phone book. Even more luckily for the Ortegas, Batgirl bursts onto the scene and makes short work of the Brisby killers. But not without some setbacks, either. It looks like she is still getting her crime-fighting legs back, pun intended. We then see everyone's favorite page from The Killing Joke, because we needed reminding after all. Babs wakes up from this nightmare, and we discover that she is living with her father, that she is moving out today, and that some miracle happened and she was able to walk again. Next, we see Babs with a load of boxes knocking on a door of Cherry Tree Hall. We meet her new roommate, a gregarious woman who also happens to be an activist named Alicia. Meanwhile, the mirror reappears at a hospital where a homicidal patient is in recovery and guarded by two cops. Babs gets an alert via her phone, which hacks her father's transmission, suits up, and goes for a ride on her bat cycle. The mirror breaks into the prisoner's room. Babs enters the elevator on her bike. The mirror flashes another person. 
Batgirl bursts into the room. The mirror points a gun at Batgirl, and she has a flashback to the killing joke and freezes. The mirror uses this opportunity to shove the patient out of the window, and Batgirl finds herself between two guns, one from the mirror and the other from the Renee Montoya knockoff. Batgirl number one. I know that there there's a number of people on this podcast who are going to have plenty to say, so I'm going to try to keep this short. And in short, I mean I'm going to point out some of the flaws that I see and just leave them out as a list of flaws. Number one, if you're an activist, you don't randomly write on the wall, fight the power on your wall. You just don't do that, especially in your own house. That doesn't make any sense. Number two, why is it that a miracle has happened and Barbara isn't in a wheelchair anymore, yet she still has a van with a wheelchair lift on it? That, again, doesn't make sense. Why is it that that same van has the Batgirl motorcycle in the back of it and she's driving around as that as a civilian? What happens when the vehicle gets stolen? The new roommate, I'm I'm having this feeling that because she's saying that she's an activist, that's going to play into something later into the future, only because I don't understand. I'm literally staring at the page where it says fight the power and I'm just thinking to myself, this is clearly... A giant red flag of hey, this is this character is going to be involved in some kind of crazy junk later in the future, because she's a so-called activist. Of course, the it doesn't even really need more need mentioning, but they did not say how Barbara Gordon suddenly is able to walk. They did not say anything other than, oh, a miracle happened and I can walk now. Um, towards the end of the issue, earlier in the book, she had guns pointed at at her and at Haas' decision, did she freeze up at any point during that situation? No. But towards the end of the issue, miraculously, she's aware of exactly where the gun is pointing. It's pointed towards her spine, and she freezes up and can't do anything about it. The fact that the, we've got the Gotham City Police Department calling her a murderer at the end of the issue just, is, just to me, is stupid, because why is she going back out on the streets as Batgirl if she has this underlying situation with dealing with people with guns and having them pointed at herself. Doesn't that make it... To me, that doesn't make a lot of sense to have someone out there fighting crime and putting and having people put their trust in them if she can't even react to a situation when someone has a gun. So essentially, I guess, you know, Superman's got kryptonite and I guess Batgirl has anybody with a gun. Uh, I guess that's, that's the new approach with Batgirl. The, the art wasn't wasn't as bad as I really thought it was going to be. I thought it was was better than some of the stuff that Saif had did in Birds of Prey. But Gail Simone is just... Obviously, we, we make our way online and we see all kinds of things. And it's a, it's a wide ray of, you know, one spectrum, one side of the spectrum to the other side of the spectrum as whether or not people like this or really don't like it. And generally, I'm seeing a lot of people who are saying it's not liked. But what doesn't at the same time make a lot of sense is this book is already sold out it's already getting a second printing and i don't know if it's just the fact that they didn't have a lot of issues expected in the first run as you know and expected it to be popular or what but i don't see i mean yes i was excited to see barbara gordon as batgirl to a certain degree so yes i expect other people who are not as immersed in the Batman universe to be excited about Barbara Gordon being Batgirl in a comic book as well, but I didn't see it selling out as fast as it did or them announcing a second printing before the book was actually released in stores. That That's what doesn't make a lot of sense. And the fact that there's, there's a lot of holes in this story, and I continue to see a lot of really 
big giant plot holes that seem that like they're not going to be getting any kind of conclusion or I guess fill in to help us understand some of these things. I'm sure we're not going to find if it, if they told you how Batgirl was suddenly able to walk in issue one and the issue wasn't that good, why would you pick up issue two? That's all I'm saying. I I think Gail Simone is extremely overrated at this point in her career. And I think that she has this little bit of an influence in a certain certain group of fans. And the problem is that her influence, in my opinion, is extremely overrated because she makes it seem... And this has nothing to do with Batgirl, but the, the LGBT community, I think she has... This, she, she she comes across as this like spokesperson for it, but if you read some of her other stories, like Secret Six, she completely takes those characters that are that fall into that kind of category and completely just ruins any kind of real interpretation that you could really have. I dread the day where Gail Simone ever gets a hold of Batwoman. I dread the day where I get Batgirl issue number two, one out of five batterings, and that's only for the art. Before I rant about this comic book, I, I need to say that no matter what I say, no matter what I'm about to say on this podcast, if you enjoyed this issue, if you read this issue and you put it down and you smiled and you liked it and you were excited to read more, then God bless you because honestly, no matter what my personal opinion is, you enjoyed this issue, you got your money's worth and you were having a good time of it and that's exactly what needs to happen. So. Don't be influenced by what I may say if you genuinely have an affection for this title, because that's all that matters. Who was this comic marketed to? This comic was marketed to the people who want to see Barbara Gordon as Batgirl. Did we get to see Barbara Gordon as Batgirl? No, we didn't. Because what we got was a clown shoes ripoff of Stephanie Brown as Batgirl. Because last month, we had a college-aged Batgirl be mentored by Barbara Gordon. And this, year, this month, we have a college-aged Batgirl who is Barbara Gordon. Okay. Now, I'm not going to get into the, the specifics about where is Stephanie Brown right now. I'm not even going to mention her or the other Batgirl because they, they are not relative towards this issue. I'm not going to mention the Birds of Prey. I'm not, I'm not going to mention anything that is, is extraneous. I'm just going to mention what's conducive to this issue because this issue needs to be judged on its own merits. Now, I have gone around and looked at a lot of reviews for this comic, and the people who liked it are very vocal that Gail Simone is the only person who can write Barbara Gordon. Barbara Gordon's Batgirl is back, even with all the trepidations, she's back. And what I'm reading is, this isn't Barbara Gordon. Because Barbara Gordon, as a character, not as Oracle, not as Batgirl, as a character, is a woman who always pushes forward and is always active and is always very positive in her intentions to fight crime. And essentially what we got here was a very shoddy Spider-Man-esque sort of, sort of crime fighter, which is ironic since that's the character Simone mentioned in the beginning. We do not get any explanation of how she can walk again. And I can just listen. But Don, the listeners don't say. She wouldn't want to put that in issue one. They want to make the readers want to find that out by reading issue two. Gail Simone's no dummy. If Gail Simone is, is relying on the MacGuffin of finding out how Barbara Gordon can walk to sell a comic, then she shouldn't be writing a comic book. If she cannot entice the readers with Barbara Gordon as a character and the plot in itself and just relying on how she can walk again and is going to tease this for money, then this book proves that it doesn't need to exist. If DC Comics wanted this issue to sell solely on the image 
of Barbara Gordon as Batgirl, then that just shows how wrongheaded and misguided that whole idea is. And it frankly really kind of insults my intelligence. Now, it's, I, 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 I don't even recognize who this is anymore. She's talking like, there you are, you rotten monsters. Found you, didn't I? Oh, yes, I did, babies. How sad for you. And she's talking to herself. It's like, I understand the idea of her getting used to being Batgirl again and running around walking. But this is like, she shouldn't be as influenced by that. This, this issue is precipitated on the idea that she was jealous as hell of Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Cain's Batgirl and wanted to be Batgirl every day of her life after she was paralyzed. So I'm reading this comic book, and I'm thinking, well, this is going to be answered, right? And we get a flashback of the, of the killing joke. I'm like, okay, well, at least we're going to find out why she wanted to become Batgirl again right after we find out how she can walk again. So I'm reading the dialogue. For three years, I couldn't move or feel my legs. And then a miracle happened. I can't believe it now. I'm like, okay, here we go, here we go. And then the next thing is like, isn't Commissioner Gordon the bestest dad in the world? He really, truly is. Damn it! It's just... There's my final point. I don't want to go on too long. If you wanted to read a, a story about Batgirl as, as Barbara Gordon, then essentially you were intending to read the Barbara Gordon you've gotten to know and your association with the character, no matter if she was Oracle or if she was, or if she was Batgirl initially in the pre-crisis. She doesn't have to... I mean, but this character in this comic book is all... All she concentrates on is what she doesn't have, which is against what Barbara Gordon always was in the beginning. Like she doesn't have a bat signal. She doesn't have a Batmobile. She doesn't have a lot of money. She doesn't have the edge she doesn't want to have. And that's just not the character. People love Barbara Gordon because of how she turned tragedy around. They loved her for how active she was. They loved her of how, how proactive she was and just she, – she didn't concentrate on what she didn't have. She, she concentrated on what she could do. But now we have like this – we have a character who is constantly dwelling on what happened to her, and that's basically the selling point of the book. Oh, the killing joke is still in continuity. Isn't that wonderful? She's still, she's still a shot. Her being shot doesn't matter. The character development and all she went through and how that should be carried over, that's what should matter. Because that's why people like the character. And if DC doesn't want to continue this and just basically wants to sell it on the imagery, then it's, then it's, it's a shot in the face, frankly, for every reader who wants to read an entertaining comic book. But the art was nice to look at. One out of five better ranks. Wow. This book was... Uh, I mean, it, it was so... It looked pretty. That, that's really all I got. I quite like the art. There were raging plot holes. I don't understand so much of the character work here and how it's written and constant references to Joker and stuff and the so many villains already over, already losing track of who's who. And this is 0.5 batterings. Okay, so speaking for the defense, the thing with this book, it's not aimed at people who loved Oracle, and it's not aimed at people who wanted to keep Stephanie Brown in the bat suit. I don't know why they made the decision they did to make this book. But I think that if veteran readers are able to separate themselves from what's gone before, to borrow some words from earlier in the conversation, here's my take on this book. This is what I saw whenever I read it. Barbara Gordon is a girl. She was Batman's star pupil. She had the bat suit. She did some adventures. She got shot by the Joker. That was three years ago. Since then, she's been in school. The book does not mention Oracle, 
And despite what might have been said in interviews before all this came out, until we see references to Oracle on the page, I don't think she was Oracle. So she's been in school in a wheelchair for the last three years, and she's just finished one phase and is going on to something else. I don't know why she's moving into this dorm. A miracle happened to get her back on her feet. It doesn't say what the miracle was, but there are other books in this lineup that have partial origin stories that not everything is coming down the pike all at once, and and to me that's fine. This girl has issues. She is not a whole person inside. She should not be going back out there to be Batgirl again, but she is. And I think a lot of the difficulties in in, in dialogue, or monologue rather, because it's her internal monologue, a lot of that is pep talk. A lot of that is trying to coax herself into doing what she's doing. I think the little thing about babies and everything on the top of the whatever she's on the top of in that very first panel of her as Batgirl, I think she's basically coaxing herself into attacking these guys. She doesn't know that whenever a gun gets pulled on her, she's going to fall apart. I think that was completely unexpected for her. I think it's the first time that's happened since she got up on her feet again. I don't think she realized that she was going to fall apart at that point. And the, the, the problems I have with this book are more in, in a couple of over-the-top moments towards the end of the storytelling. The whole motorcycle and the hospital thing just kind of blows my mind a little bit. And I see this book as, a, as an experiment because it is a PTSD character. And I'm not entirely sure that that's going to work for a lot of people especially people who were expecting a strong Barbara Gordon that we've had for the last however many years, better part of two decades. And also, you know, we recently had Stephanie Brown, who started out as, you know, young and immature, but not bad off, just young and immature. And she grew up over the last couple of years in some of the best Batgirl stories, you know, that we could have asked for. So this is an interesting choice of book because I don't really think it was what a lot of people were expecting it to be, but I think that it is a good story. I'm going to give it three and a half. There were some problems I felt with some of the, some of the storytelling elements, like I said, towards the end of the action. And I'm just not really sure where the whole story is going to go with the mirror. I didn't really care for the mirror as a villain. I felt like he was a final destination guy. And I wasn't entirely sure what he was showing the people. And, and there were some problems there. But those, those questions might get answered in later installments. They just aren't here. So I'm left wondering what the heck's going on. Okay, Stella, find your center. Find your center. So first I would like to ask, this, this whole, you know, I get freaked out by a gun. There was a gun in the hand of one of the members of the Brisby Killers. And I know there are probably people out there right now that are saying, but Stella, it wasn't pointed at her. And really, it was the connection between the pointing at her and Joker point at her, but I would like to argue that any person that goes through some sort of trauma, any little thing is going to snap them back to that. The sight of that gun would have snapped her back, just like the scent of something would snap somebody back to, you know, if they were beat up in an alley or something like that. So I, I don't really know why all of a sudden she's freezing up. Quite simply, this is not Barbara Gordon. You know, gone is the confident, think-before-she-leaps intelligent hero. We're left with someone who freezes at the sight of a gun, makes rookie mistakes, and seems to have some sort of Batman identity crisis. You know, I think this problem is 
stemming from the fact that there is just way too much going on in this issue. We're introduced to a new villain, learn that Babs can walk but don't know why, learn that she is still getting over gunshock three years later, and get introduced to a new roommate. I mean, there is material here, enough for at least two issues, so we're kind of bombarded with things. But, you know, if I can revisit my first point that this is not Barbara Gordon... First of all, we practically have Batgirl turning into Batman, and what do I mean by that? Well, she begins her internal monologue by saying that she's not Barbara Gordon, but she's Batgirl. She then switches and says that she's Barbara Gordon. <sighs> you know, she should be one than the other depending on what clothes she's wearing. Barbara Gordon is what informs the Batgirl identity. It, it doesn't come off like a mask. Steph has always said, I'm Stephanie Brown and I'm Batgirl. It was always one and then the other in the same breath. And then Cass used to say, I'm Cassandra Kane. It's always the identity first. But instead we have Barbara Gordon basically going around as as Batman where you know you can kind of flip the switch and it goes off and 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 I don't really like that because to me maybe this is digging too much in but we're gonna have a dark comic and when I think of Barbara Gordon I think of Batgirl year one where she has fun with this and she can you know make jokes and 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 she's bubbly like Steph but now we're we're suffering the whole we need everybody to be like Batman syndrome that DC seems to thwarting our lives with I also think that Barbara Gordon is practically experiencing the same things that we saw in Steph's first year you know when I was reading this comic I just thought wow this didn't I read this two years ago you know mistakes a man falling out of a window a look into her outside life this is all things we've dealt with and you know what this is just like reading a Spider-Man comic we have roommate shenanigans already Babs is hated by the police she's leaving Aunt May at home money troubles do I need to go on no this is this is not Barbara Gordon this is practically Peter Parker I have so many points, but I just don't want to to continue going on. I guess the last point I'll make is about the Renee Montoya knockoff. I just want to know why we don't have Renee Montoya. That's one thing. And the second thing is, why is she pointing her gun at Babs and saying murderer when the murderer, the actual murderer, is right there and his gun is also trained on Batgirl? Why would she not direct her gun towards him? I that's it blows my mind. And again, Peter Parker syndrome because everybody hates him. This is oh, I don't know. It just hurts me so much. I wrote like a page of comments and as I was typing them, I was literally tearing up because mm-hmm. I love this character so much and to have a comic like this that I did not like is such a shark for me. It, 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 it really hurt. I think that Gail Simone is definitely feeling the pressure. Whether or not we can say she's, I don't know, is she overrated? I, I, I never really can tell or she just tries to outdo herself a little too much. But Simone, I think, definitely needs to call a mulligan. And boy, wouldn't that be awesome if you could just rewrite Batgirl number one, because I think maybe learning from the mistakes could definitely be better. And gosh, I feel like it deserves a number one out of five, but I don't know if I can give it that. It just hurts so much. I'm going to give it a 2 out of 5, and the only reason I am is, I think, because of the art, even though there is some fluctuation between it, and, I guess, seeing Batgirl back in the cowl. Those are, like, the two points I gave it a 2 out of 5 Batarangs. You know, this book could have been better. If they had her adjust to being able to walk and then decide how to become Batgirl for some reason, it would be a new experience for her to adjust an aspect of her life 
that she had well been passed, and it would serve as new fodder for the readers to get into yeah. without alienating older readers. But they, they, they just upended that just so, just so we can have like a bumbling, you know, two-fisted, ineffectual comic book character because people like flaws. This comic sucks. Yeah, I, I think it really needed to be about her getting her sea legs back, which, I mean, she does. That is what it's about for two panels when she's facing the Brigsby killers. It doesn't need to be about the. I think it's too much to have this PTSD business. I think it's about, okay, it's, I really need to figure out how this, how this is going to go. But I don't know. It, it just seems, it rubs me the wrong way. I don't think that she would freeze at the sight of a gun like this. I feel like the review I gave was pretty harsh. And I'd just like to say for people listening... Maybe I am a bit biased towards Gail Simone because I don't like the way she writes or the way she writes characters, but I still stand that this isn't a good book. And like Stella was saying, who obviously the biggest Barbara Gordon fan here, it's not really Barbara Gordon, and I think that's the main problem with it. And it obviously, like John was saying, it is sad for people who who you know want still want Steph as Batgirl and stuff like that, and. Uh, trying to, you've got to get over that and stuff, I suppose, which is just going to be hard for everyone who was such big fans of the other Batgirls. But I don't think I was too harsh with my review, but I think that what Don said, you know, it's it is a dis- there is a very distinct difference between those of us who have been reading comics for a very extended amount of time and those people out there who are just getting into comics, and these are the comics that they're getting into with. the The problem that that I see for this is that this is a completely different take on the character. It's not the same Barbara Gordon that we've seen in the past, so it's very different for us veteran readers who've been reading this. And to completely change it for the people who've been reading comics and buying and essentially keeping DC in business for all these years, it's really kind of... It goes back to some of the comments we made when we first talked about the the new 52 back in June, where, you know, it's kind of a spit in the face because this is designed for new readers, but it's not holding true for those of us who've been reading comics in a while. And I think Batgirl is a perfect example of, okay, we th- they threw one page in there to show us that the killing jokes still happen, but besides that, it's a very different take on the character that we as veteran readers are completely unfamiliar with and do not understand from the point that they're trying to get the, the character across. So I think that the the reason behind that is, you know, the people out there who really th- enjoy the book might be because they haven't actually been, they don't know anything about Barbara Gordon other than, well, she was Batgirl at some point, she was in a wheelchair at some point, but now she's Batgirl again, and they're not as concerned about why she's, she's suddenly being able to walk. She, they're more concerned about Barbara Gordon is Batgirl, and that's really cool to them, and that's why it's, it's a really good read. But I think those same people don't know necessarily the difference between a really good story and something where it just is a story that is telling a bunch of different things that stars the character that they really enjoy. Exactly. Like, Killing Joe references do not a good story make. Barbara Gordon as Batgirl do not a good story make. It's characterization. It's engaging plots. It's a villain who makes sense. It's actions who make sense. And essentially... Even if you wanted to change the character and advertise it that way, then you shouldn't have cherry-picked the characters. And, and ch- you should have just changed all of them. Give Batman a mustache and have him beat up people with a lasso. Like, ser- like, like seriously, because like, why El are you... <laughs> <laughs> True. Well, it's, it's essentially, to make Barbara Batgirl again and to sell that comic, you changed 
essentially who the character was. And that's just straight up lying. That's just, that's just being untruthful to what you're selling as a product. Uh, but if you've never read a Batgirl comic book before or you're not familiar with Barbara Gordon and you enjoyed this, cool. A, a running theme for me this week as I was reading all of the 13 books that came out is that I think a lot more has been changed about who these characters are and where they are in their worlds than we maybe were led to believe. I think everybody's significantly different than who we thought they're going to be, and that goes for Batman too, as we'll talk about here in a little bit. So then, over on the website, over on the website, Comic Uno gave the book four and a half out of five batterings. So that is going to give out of six reviews, Batgirl number one, two out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batwing number one. Once you have frozen mankind, these babies will overrun the globe. And we shall rule them. For we will be the only two people left in the world. Yes. Adam and Evil. Yes. You distract the bat and bird while I prepare. Batwing number one, written by Judd Winnick, illustrated by Ben Oliver. This issue to the new Batwing series begins with a series of panels illustrating the fight between Batwing and his new nemesis, Massacre. But as that's going on, we are given a flashback to how things have gotten to, into this point. Which, spoilers, they, they won't, this won't get resolved by the end of the issue. Six weeks ago, Batwing was tracking down this drug dealer named Blood Tiger and basically trying to find out where the shipments of drugs were being as he was getting used to the Batwing identity. But he was, he was also receiving help from the real Batman, who was helping him capture some of the drug dealers and essentially scaring them out of the wits and the like. So Batwing grabs one henchman and is able to find out the, uh, the, base, the base of operations. And he sees a bunch of horribly mutated and dismembered corpses with the word wrong written in blood on a wall at a trailer. And his non-Batwing disguise as David Zavimbi... He, who is an officer of the Tanisha Police Department. He's not an acting officer. He's just a desk worker. He wants to know how much the, uh, the police department is, is gaining from Batwing's es- es- escapades, essentially. So while he learns all they, all they learn from his fellow officer, we, we cut back to the Haven, which is Batwing's base of operations. And him, Batman, and Matu Ba, his Alfred of sorts, for lack of a better phrase, wearing a fantastic orange shirt, I must say is they're going over the wallet that was left at the scene who belonged to a man named Dede Yoba, who was an agricultural attache. But they later learned that he was once known as a crime fighter called Earthstrike, a member of the crime fighting group, The Kingdom. So there's this whole, like, Watchmen-level conspiracy going on. David goes back to the police headquarters to find out what else he can learn and sees that, just like earlier in, early in the issue, all the officers in the entire department are killed, their heads been cut off, their limbs been cut off, and it's a very, very grisly scene, grisly scene with the words and blood on the wall, stay away, written. He's mourning the loss of his colleagues. He is stabbed right through the chest by Massacre, who says, you are late for work. To be continued in the mass- madness of Massacre. Batwing number one. I, I don't think this was as bad as, as bad as I expected it to be. But that's, I had very, let's just put it this way, I had ex- expectations for it to be like a zero or maybe a one out of five batterings, and it didn't, it didn't, it did better than that. But at the same point, that's, that doesn't say much. But 
I do find it interesting that we take a character that we know nothing about. He's had, you know, a few essentially cameo appearances in Batman Incorporated, and they they decided to give him his his own series. And whether or not that's because he is an African, whether or not that's because he he doesn't follow the same, I guess, same cultural standards as every single other Bat family member. I mean, there's clearly not any other black members of the Bat family that are currently active, I should say, because there has been in the past. There just isn't any right now. You know, I don't know why they decided to give this character his own book. It is a little bit annoying to have to try to figure out some of... I I give Judd Winnick props for trying to... I guess word certain things the way it would be worded from that area of the and using instead of just standard names which would come across as cheesy he's actually using names that would make sense down in that that region of the world at the same point it just seems like they're they're he he's trying to set something up very large but we don't know a lot of information and to me I like to know the information about the character prior to trying to get into this very in-depth thing that's concentrating on this character and the world that this character is living in. I don't know anything about the character, and at this point, Judd Winnick is trying to tell me everything about this, you know, about the world that this character lives in without telling me about the character himself. We know that he has a Batcave, which is called The Haven. We know that Batman somehow makes, makes some special business trips down to Africa to talk to him. We know that he has someone that looks like Sam Jackson from the Avengers, <laughs> as is Alfred. The thing that interests me the most about this series is that the, the kingdom. That is the only thing that I'm really like really drawn to and I want to know more about. Specifically because this is essentially a group of heroes that's been around for a while. In my opinion, we're led to believe to a certain element that the characters have been around for quite some time. So it would be prior to... You, he says, well, it's before superheroes started popping up all over the world. So we would assume it's it was at least five years ago. Because that's when the Justice League started popping up, was five years ago. So the, these characters have been around since, you know, at least that time frame. So, being that there's other characters that originated from it somewhere in that area of the world, it would be interesting to see that a character from the DC Universe was actually a part of that before they were actually held their their part in the Justice League or, you know, before they actually had a role in the overall DC Universe was they had this little role in this group called the Kingdom that kind of was the superheroes of Africa. And that, to me, would be really interesting. I don't know if that's going to end up happening. We'll have to wait and see. But I think the art was was alright. I expected it to be a little bit better based off of some of the preview art, and it seems... Like, they're, they're going for a specific style, which I understand because of the actual story that's happening with the massacres and the genocide that they're having to deal with. But the, but the same point, I expected it to not be as gritty and stylized as it was. So the art was a little bit of a disappointment for me, but it wasn't bad. It was just, it wasn't what I was expecting. So I'm going to give this two and a half out of five batterings. This actually was a lot more interesting than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be kind of like a like some kind of, sort of like political crime thing in Africa. I thought we got a little more of Batwing's character than I, I was expecting in this, especially after reading Batgirl in this first issue. I do wish we got a little more about like you know why is he 
what made him choose to become this this mass crime fighter. But I kind of like the character of David Vizem. I'm, I'm trying to remember how to pronounce his last name consistently. I think I got it right once. But I actually really, really liked Ben Oliver's art in this. I mean, there were some scenes where, where Batwing looked, looked great, especially when he says to the guys in the flashback, get out of the car with like the his his face in shadow. And I thought I thought the art was uh, great all around. I hope this guy stays on for a long time. This is one of the most violent <laughs> DC comics I've ever read in recent years, just because like the the const it's not just a person getting their heads cut off, but like it's bodies and bodies and bodies of it with blood being written on the walls and everything. It's it's incredibly like this is an R-rated comic, and I actually think that like the teen rating is a little too lenient on it. The whole plot is kind of interesting with the kingdom and stuff. I actually thought that this, this is a little too padded. I wish this was moved in a little faster. But it had a great ending, I thought. You know, how is, how is he going to get out of this one? So this wasn't, as, as a comic book, and it's probably easier because this is a new character. I'm kind of over the whole, does he deserve a series thing? Because like, it's kind of too late about that. I mean, I don't think he does. But if this was just, if this is an issue of Batman Inc., for instance, it would be a good issue. So as it stands alone, it's, it's an interesting issue for a first issue. So I would give this actually about three and a half out of five Batarangs. How is he going to get out of this one with an Edward Thorne-style machete stuck through his chest? I wonder. I really enjoyed the art in this one. I said all along that I enjoyed Ben Oliver's art because I saw some of it in, I think it was the first Hal, jo- Hal Jordan Flashpoint tie-in. It's going to take some getting used to, I think, because it's on... It's difficult to describe. I think it did a fairly decent job in introducing the Batwing character. I got a bit confused by the jumps in time. They started, Towards the end, I, was, I started to lose track of where I was. But like I said, I thought it was a decent introduction. And I like the fact that he's not only is he a superhero, but he's a cop trying to be a cop. And he's not just relying on the fact that he's a superhero. He's also trying to make the regular police who are just... You know, members of the public. They're trying to make them heroes, heroes as well, not just relying on the fact that, you know, he's a member of Batman Inc. He can just go around doing whatever he wants. He's trying to make everyone do their part, which I think is quite a nice angle. Overall, I think I'm going to give this three and a half out of five batterings. I actually thought it was quite enjoyable. I'm looking forward to the next issue. When I first read this book, I put it in my top four for the week. I really, really enjoyed it. The art is amazingly beautiful. The story was violent, and I like violence in my comics at times. The idea that as Batwing, you know, he'll investigate a scene and he'll find something, and he'll, you know, make sure that the police are able to find it, you know, as, as you know, to help his own police officers, that, that was kind of cool. But as I was going back through the book and trying to figure out points on, on you know, to praise it for the show... There were there were some air, some some issues with it that I found. I did find the time sequences a bit confusing. Like he's fighting Machete in the beginning. Machete says something that gives him a flashback, and we have a flashback for the rest of the issue. Uh, and it ends with him getting a blade through his chest, which yeah is a pretty cool shocker ending. But we have all the stuff at the front, and plus this is an ongoing with an issue two coming out next month. So. I guess the question becomes, what does the machete mean for the character rather than how is he going to survive? I, I like the character. I want to see more of the character. I like the fact that Batman had been mentoring him. I wish we knew a little bit more about why 
but I understand from the interviews that we read at the beginning of the episode that we're going to find out why as we go, and that's fine. I want to know if his if his eye-patched butler guy is a hologram or not. I liked the book. I, I think it uh, was a little bit confusing for a first issue, but I do definitely want to see more, and I will... I will browse the pages and even if even if the book the story stops interesting me i will browse the pages in the comic shop just for the art because it is it is a beautiful book i don't think you're supposed to do that (laughs) (laughs) i don't think this counts as a confession i'm being coerced oh dear so omac is over you right now you know first and foremost this comic was absolutely beautiful i thought the art was just astounding and we had a sneak peek of it at san diego comic-con and those were pencils and i thought wow that is amazing but you know added with the color i just thought wow this is great which makes it even more great when you get all this blood and then you're no it's a little too much for me there but yeah it was exceptionally violent I'm that one person that always talks about Psycho Pirate and Infinite Crisis and the way he died, kind of his head being inside outed. It it was gross. So this is, wow, we're really going all we can to get, get violence in our comics now. I agree with Don that this this was a little too heavy for a teen rating, and I, I could imagine this violence being a, a turnoff for many, but I guess we'll see. I was actually getting a little frustrated at the beginning when Batman kept talking about Batman, and I was just wondering if you know Batman was just going to continue to be alluded to or actually appear in the issue. So I'm glad that Batman does appear, because I thought that this new character needed to somehow be grounded in a way that connected him to a character we all know already because I don't know if this guy, this Batwing, has enough merit to start off in his book all by himself. So I think, you know, right now it it certainly worked out. I actually think, in my opinion, this is how Batgirl should have been. Well, probably not with the machete through her chest, but, you know, I was going in. That would be awful. I was that's how she can walk again. The machete did it. Well, I mean, she did have two knives in her legs by her brother, so maybe that was the miracle. That sounds like a good comic. The machete did it. The machete did it. But, you know, I was coming in, I'm like, oh, this is absolutely dumb. Who is this guy? We know zero about him. And I think maybe having those low standards, you know, really like, yeah, it it made me very happy when it was not a crappy book. Uh, You know, I got interested (laughs) in the character in and out of the cape. And we're not bombarded with different subplots. That's why, that was the main reason, basically, why I thought this was how Batgirl should have been. Give this four out of five Batarangs. So that's going to give Batwing number one out of five reviews, three and a half out of five Batarangs. Let's move into Detective Comics number one. You've traveled about 50 years into your future. And the Watchtower? It's gone. We lost a lot of good people that day. You mean Superman? Jean? All the others? Yeah. You too. And the Batcave? This is all we have left now. Deal with it. Detective Comics number one, written and drawn by Tony Daniel. The issue starts off with Batman's making a statement saying that over 114 murders over the past six years have occurred and essentially all of them relate back to the joker 
Uh, essentially, that's 19 years, or t- that's 19 murders per year oh that the Joker has committed since over the last six years. We get Batman, who's essentially trying to catch the Joker because he knows exactly where he is. Joker's having, he's in the process of, I guess, trying to murder somebody who has a skin mask over their face. The Joker is actually naked, and Joker, in fact, kills this person. And Batman crashes into the window as Joker is, you know, attempting to essentially slice the crap out of this person he just murdered. And what ends up happening is an explosion goes off, the Joker gets away, Batman saves a little girl and lets the Joker get away. The issue then continues off with Batman having to kind of fight off the Gotham City Police Department because they essentially don't trust him. And we then cut to Batman in the Batmobile going to the Batcave where he comes across a hologram Alfred. And we then see Batman on the police headquarters talking to Commissioner Gordon. And they kind of have a talk about how the police department's not really... Doesn't really like Batman. The fact that Mayor Hattie has actually said that they they need to continue to track down Batman and catch him and arrest him. And Gordon says that he's very... He, he trusts Batman and everybody else is just stupid. We then find out at Roscoe's Pharmacy that Harvey Bullock supposedly has the Joker surrounded and Batman comes to the location only to find out that it's not actually the Joker, it's a trap. The building explodes, Batman is down on, is in the middle of that explosion and gets blown down into a police car. As he's standing there, he's looking around and everybody's watching the explosion except for one person with a purple umbrella walking away. Then what happens is this person gets on a train with, and then Batman tells the Joker, well, this is your stop. He catches the Joker, Joker goes off to Arkham Asylum after a nice couple-page fight between the two of them. And uh, once Joker gets to Arkham Asylum, he's met what appears, well, what is said to be Dr. Arkham. And he says that a physician is coming in to check on his injuries. And the physician who comes in is actually this character called the Dollmaker. And the last page is uh, pretty crazy where we see the Joker's face actually cut off of his skull. Almost as if he was uh, scalped from the front of his face instead of the hair of his head. And it's nailed to the wall. And the two of them are talking about how they're going to celebrate the Joker's rebirth. And that is Detective Comics number one. All right couple things. Number one, the, the there's clearly a time issue with what, when this series is happening. We talked about it during the interview that we that we, we read during Comic News with Tony Daniel where he said this is a much earlier version of, of Batman. The fact that this issue starts off with saying that the Joker essentially has only been around for six years means this isn't taking place at year 10 as the new timeline for DC is occurring. So... The reasoning behind a lot of the the, the stuff that it, it's starting to make sense when you when you start to wrap this together, we assumed because that was the intent was that Action Comics and Justice League were the only ones taking place in the past. Justice League was five years ago, Action Comics was five years and six months ago. That was the intent. Nobody ever said anything about Detective Comics not taking place in the present time. This issue couldn't be taking place in the present time because, one, the Joker probably has been around for more than six years. 
out of the 10 years that Batman's been around, there's no way that the Joker's only been around for six years. Especially since we just read in Batgirl that the Joker shot Barbara three years ago. So that means Barbara, if we say that Detective Comics and Batgirl are at the same time, that means that Joker was only around for three years before Batgirl, which means Joker wasn't even around. Uh, it, it's it's too confusing. So this clearly is not happening. We also throw in the little elements about, okay, well, suddenly Jim Gordon doesn't have white hair. He has red hair. Well, he could have dyed the hair. That's not really that big of a thing. <laughs> there's, there's, there's absolutely no reference whatsoever to any of the other supporting cast of the Bat family. So, again, that's another thing where it makes me think that this is happening in the past. The other interesting thing is Mayor Hattie has been, a, has, has been the mayor recently in the Bat books during year 10. Yet, he is the mayor in this book as well, and he's saying that Batman needs to be caught because he's a vigilante. There's a, there's a problem with that because I don't know that... There's been multiple mayors in Gotham City. We know this because they've made a point to show us different mayors throughout the time of, of Gotham City. So to say that the same mayor in year six was hap- was was the same mayor that in year ten or year nine, that doesn't make any sense. There's too many time problems with this this situation. I thought the art was actually really good. Um, you can tell that Tony Daniel clearly had the time to put into the art because when he does, he does decent art. The story is this comes across as a number zero and not a number one. It really comes across as it's leading into something, which is what Tony Daniel said in the interview, which was the point of this issue. But I don't know that we had to have Batman chase and catch Joker multiple times in the same issue. It just it just seemed like it was getting redundant by the I guess was it the second or third time that it happened. So the story is not really there for me. It's it's. I, I'm interested to know about this this doll maker character just because of that last page with the Joker's face skinned on the wall. But again, at the same time, if this is taking place at year six and not whenever in present time, how is the Joker still look like the Joker when he shoots Barbara Gordon during the Killing Joke? If that happened three years ago, which would still be a year from now, there's a lot of problems. Dude, it it, does, it doesn't make sense. Stop trying to make sense of it. <laughs> It makes so, sense, it makes sense, it makes sense. Ultimately, I'm going to give this issue a total of three out of five batterings. I'm going to ignore the entire timeline thing because it just makes my brain hurt. I, 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 good conscience cannot make sense of when this takes place. It's just, Batman is early in his career. He's early with his relationship with the Joker. He's early in his relationship with Gordon. Moving on. First of all, the art. I actually thought this is like some of the best stuff Daniel has done since Morris's Batman run. Because I always thought that, like, that was... I, I preferred that kind of style to his style when he when Dick Grayson was Batman. I thought the Dick Grayson Batman kind of era, everything looked a lot more broad, whereas this one looks a lot more slick and a lot more refined. And I really, really enjoyed it. I actually really liked the way the Joker looked in this issue. I thought he looked very, 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 very iconic, which makes the last page kind of all that more disconcerting. When I read the preview for this issue, I didn't have high hopes at all because I thought that the dialogue was kind of forced and batman saying forget about it, joker you can't run i own the night it's like god that's like the biggest batman cliche but you know honestly daniel did a pretty good job i mean i really thought that this was 
some of the best Batman writing he's done ever. And because it was so simple and it didn't really feel all that disconcerting to me. I mean, he got Batman down mostly right. He got Gordon down right, Joker down right. I actually like the dialogue scene where Gordon says Gotham is a hellhole, always has been and always will be. And Batman's like, like hell it will. I, I kind of like that. I mean, it's kind of showing a very ambitious, optimistic side of Batman through a very gruff demeanor. So I was actually digging the way the story was rolling. I liked, I liked the scene in the train where you think the, the little girl is scared of the Joker, but she's more scared of Batman. And I liked the fight scene. I liked him being tossed back at Arkham. The one thing I hated about the story was the very last page because, honestly, that sickened, that sickened me. Just the, the image. Credit to Daniel because it was incredibly well drawn, but that was so disgusting. And I'm, it, it almost seems so unnecessary. I'm sure like it's all part of the Dollmaker's master plan to, to scalp the faces off the people of the world or whatever, but it was just, ugh. It, I don't want to see that. It's like, see, okay, I know the Virgo universe merged with DC in this, but get get the characters right, at least, so the tone can match. I mean, this was so... This was awful. But but the whole issue itself was actually a pleasant surprise for me. So I'll give it four out of five batterings. So, the Joker comes straight from your work with Grant Morrison, does it? Tony Salvador Daniel. Then why, oh why, does he not have a bullet hole in his head? It's so simple. Gets the relaunch. Uh, but it's uh, it's the one thing I get really annoyed about when people draw the Joker. I think that should stay. Anyway, yeah, I agree completely with Don. It was, I think, it probably was the best thing I've ever read from Daniel. It was it was simple and it, I I thought it felt really energized and I think that probably was from the relaunch, and I thought the pacing was quite good. I. The art was really good. I think Daniel normally does a better, better job when it's a bit grittier, and I feel that with Batman's new suit, it's difficult to do that because how armor-like it looks. But, yeah, I thought the last page was really great. I really enjoyed that, apart from the dialogue, because it didn't make any sense how the Joker could still pronounce his Fs and Ms when he didn't have any lips left. But aside from that, I... I really enjoyed it. I thought there were some cliches in there, but other things which I thought worked really well. I'm actually going to give this four out of five batterings, and I'm really looking forward to the next issue. This was my second favorite issue of the week behind Action Comics. Uh, Really, really dug it. Timeline stuff. Justice League says on its front page that it takes place five years ago, but Action Comics doesn't. We just assume from Action Comics and the way it goes that it's in the past because it seems like an early days of Superman story and because we've been told it's an early days of Superman story. We've been told those are the only two books that take place in the past and that everything else takes place in the present. So I, I'm going to go with this being a present day story and that the Joker's been around for six years and never been incarcerated, evidently, because Batman says the courts have not been able to pin any murders on him. So... It almost feels like this is the first time the Batman's caught the Joker, but I'm not entirely sure that's true. It, it also feels like the first time he's ever been in Arkham Asylum, the way Dr. Arkham was talking. So it's, it's a lot of stuff. that though, if, if that's the case, then that implies a whole lot of things about Batman's and Joker's history that is extremely different to what we would have been expecting. Alfred is a computer program, evidently. He's, he appears as a hologram. Okay, you you want to explain that? Yeah. He appears as a hologram in the Batcave. 
he talks about his, oh, I don't have the exact words in front of me. When describing the conversation with the girl, he talks about how his distress meter was malfunctioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talks about uploading himself or uploading the uh, hologram to the systems. I, I, I would be surprised if I'm wrong, but I, I, I tend to think that all that together, plus the fact that he never moves, he never walks, he never changes his face. He doesn't look like he's somewhere else and just projecting himself into the cave. It looks like it's just an avatar for a computer program talking to Bruce, which would be interesting if, if, if this new Alfred is just a hologram. Maybe the real Alfred died? I don't know. Jim Gordon is young. He's red-haired. His and Batman's interaction didn't seem to be quite as easygoing as it has been. So I think that their relationship is not nearly as comfortable as, as, as we're used to. It's, it's very, very different. But as far as the actual story, I really dug it. I felt like Batman was hunting down clues. He was he was being Batman. He was being chased by the police, which is sort of feeding into the status quo left to us by Dark Knight for you know readers who are coming on from the Batman movies. You know, the if the police have never liked Batman because they were chasing him in Justice League one five years ago and they're chasing him now in Detective Comics number one, it, it, it seems like you know that would be kind of hard for him to be on a superhero team and still have that be the case. But but then again, the police don't like Spider Man either, and he's on you know more than one Avengers team. And, and the mayor is, it does say that the mayor is putting more weight on the police lately than usual. So they, they, it may be that there's usually an uneasy truce, but that's kind of gone south lately. I don't know. It's, it, it's an interesting story. There, there are convert comments made by Batman about how, you know, I wonder if the Joker always takes off his clothes before he, you know, you know, we were supposed to finish the sentence before he kills or whatever. So has, has Batman never, you know, never caught the Joker in the act and, or, or never caught the Joker at all. I just well, if the Killing a, Joke is still in continuity. He had, he's had it to have. All we know about the Killing Joke so far on the page is that she is that he shot Barbara, and that it happened three years ago. And that it happened three years ago. We don't know anything else about that. I personally think that a lot of people have talked in interviews about other people's books and not necessarily known what they were saying. And, and like I said earlier in the in the uh, whenever we were talking about the Tony Daniel interview, I wonder if the things that I'm seeing in this book are going to bleed over into other into the other Batman books. Is Tony Daniel just talking and making up his own thing, or is there going to be some cohesion there? There really, really ought to be some freaking cohesion between these books, because if if he does one thing with Batman in one book, and we just see something else from you know from what's his face on the Dark Knight. You know, in a couple of weeks, and it's, it's going to be bothersome. But, but yeah, I I think the story was really good. I liked the last page. I thought that was some excellent gruesomeness. If you're going to have gruesomeness anywhere, it's going to be in the Joker story. You know, the Joker is a psychotic murderer who who doesn't care. And if there's going to be any place for blood and violence in Batman's world, it's going to be in a Joker story. The fact that this <laughs> isn't really a Joker story so much as it is chapters zero to the Dollmaker story, it, it may kind of you know throw off my logic there. But yeah, I, I really dug this book. I liked Batman. I liked what he did in this story. And I think that um, he has been changed more than we thought when we, uh, when we went into this uh, New 52. Four and a half out of five. Uh, I guess I have to, at, before I begin my review, talk about some things that have been mentioned before. The first thing from John about this whole lack of cohesion, 
there has just lack of communication is like the theme of DC right now, and that's absolutely what concerns me because one thing may be some way in one book and then it'll be completely different in the other. And that that may be the downfall of this DC new. The other one was about Alfred. I feel like and when I found out you know, for always Don is the one to shake my world for some reason. You know, he was the one to tell me about this DC new. John's, uh, John's. <laughs> I know, but it always comes from your mouth. And so I don't know. But I feel like it would be crossing the line if, if, <laughs> if this is true. Because Alfred is like the one thing that remains constant and, and always tries to keep Bruce Wayne slash Batman grounded and almost a human rather than just, you know, a being that exists and his only goal in life is to make Gotham cleaner and and safer for everyone. And I just think that would be so awful to see him go away. I also... I mean, if he were to go away, I would wonder what was going to happen with all the the minor cuts and scrapes and bone break you know because he was always the one that to mend them and we have yet to see i mean it's only issue one so what can you expect stella but we have yet to see leslie Tompkins and whether or not she has a role but gosh if alfred is not there then she's i mean she obviously has to have some big role but i would be really heart sick if if alfred were to just be a hologram i think that would be awful and the final thing was about the uh, the face ripping off. I I I have been since James Jr. had that guy hanging in his basement with his limbs gone <laughs> and his jaw gone. I really want to ask the biology teacher at the school that I work at whether you know. I've always thought that the tongue was attached to the lower jaw, so I always wondered why that guy hanging still at his tongue. But I don't know how to go about this, you know, asking a teacher about this. And now I want to ask, can you survive a thing to have your, like, face removed, literally removed? I mean, it happened in Face Off, but that's just a movie. But, okay, so that's that stuff. So it looks like I was wrong, completely wrong, about Tony Daniel not starting off with the Joker. Because remember back in that DC News special that I was on, I thought, oh, how inventive he's not going to go with the joker even though <laughs> remember but i'm just completely wrong it was all about the joker there are many things about this comic that i think just seems really different you know we've already talked about this but you know after hearing that interview i'm, I'm glad it makes sense at least batman is definitely inexperienced and i would say he's practically batman year one i mean that's probably not what it is but really some of the mistakes he makes and even seeing jim again with red hair and he probably has a six-pack under there right josh you know is very interesting and of course batman saying never again in regards to joker getting the better of him because the first time he went out he said how lucky he was and that wasn't going to happen again he was going to be more prepared so it just seems like wow is he a rookie too and and then we also have an exceptionally violent Joker, and so maybe it's just me, and I'm not used to having him be so violent because you know coming from John's mouth saying that you know he is a psychopath, maybe he is this violent, but gosh, he ripped that guy's throat out with his teeth, and frankly, I just wondered why he was naked in the first place. That would be my question. Not I I don't know. You know here I come back to this uber violent business. I I just don't know. You know the beginning and the end are practically stomach turning for some of us not all apparently but i really don't see the the need for this and i i wonder if this was because of snyder's run because i think daniel had a lot to live up 
two uh, following Snyder. And, of course, there were some gruesome things going on there. Another thing that bothered me was when Batman was rescuing the girl. I, frankly, just wanted him to run out the window rather than stopping, putting, you know, putting her down and, and fighting the cops. So I wondered... It was like he was ADD Batman. Okay, let me take care of the cops first, and then I'll get back to you, girl. What I liked best about this issue, actually, was the interaction between Gordon and Batman. I thought it was laid out nicely and scripted nicely as well. Uh, that one panel where it's half Batman's face and then half Gordon's face, and they're talking, and I just thought, oh, wow, this is, this is really great. And, you know, this was one of the relationships that I really wanted to stay intact. I, I was, this is one of the things I was wondering about. And, and I think it really needs to stay intact. So I was glad that it remained untainted, at least. But for one of the big titles of the DC New, I didn't really think it delivered as it should have. I, I think that, I don't know. I, I think that Batman with, with Snyder is probably going to be... The, the bigger of the two and actually come through but Detective has such a name on it that in my opinion it, it didn't really deliver so three out of five batterings alright and over on the website Dane gave the issue three and a half out of five batterings so that is going to give the issue four out of five batterings that is all of our comic book reviews so let's throw over to Nick with Bad Books for Beginners Ladies and gents, and welcome to another edition of Bat Books for Beginners, or BBFB if you prefer. My name is Nick, and today the book I'm looking at is The Vengeance of Bane. This was published in 1993, and it was sort of as a mini-series to prepare people for the Nightfall Saga that was about to begin, sort of to get you in the mood, and to help you understand this new mysterious villain called Bane, who uh, of course became such an iconic villain in the future and will be featured in the in the Dark Knight Rises movie coming up next summer. So if you're interested in learning a bit more about his origin, this is the place. Now this was written by the master, Chuck Dixon, who doesn't really need much of an intro anymore. I've covered so many of his books lately. And the art was provided by Graham Nolan, who I'm not very familiar with, but he's also worked on Bane of the Demon, which obviously had Bane again, Vengeance of Bane 2, which was the sequel to this, and Detective Comics as well. So he's clearly uh, an artist closely associated with Bane. So now, let's dive into the plot and find out how did Bane begin. I knew sooner or later we would face each other, Batman. I prayed for it. So as a young baby, Bane is sentenced to serve a life term for the crimes of his father, who is a revolutionary on the small island of Santa Prisca. Bane's father escapes, and Bane is sent to prison in his stead. As a small boy, he learns the ins and outs of his prison or home. He watches his mother die whilst in prison, and after his mother dies, Bane is sent out into the general population in the prison, and he does kill an inmate who wants the small boy to work for him. It's also during this time that Bane befriends three inmates, Zombie, Trog, and Bird. So after killing this inmate, Bane is sent into the hole for many years. He earns the name Bane because he just refuses to die. This greatly upsets the warden who has a great dislike for Bane. 
During his time in the hole, Bane has a dream where he kills a giant bat demon. And once returning to Gem Pop, he learns from Bird about Gotham City and how the Batman rules that city. During the next few months, Bane becomes obsessed with killing the Batman. After spending months learning to read and reading every book in the library, Bane is given the chance to undergo a treatment for a drug known as Venom. Bane is the only test subject that can withstand treatments, and once they are complete, he and his three henchmen break out of Santa Prisca and head to Gotham. Along the way, Bane kills the warden who tormented him for so many years. And once in Gotham, Bane and Bird kill the gangster Tommy No-Nose for setting Bird up to take the fall and be sent to Santa Prisca in the first place. Batman does make a very brief appearance towards the end of the story where after breaking up a mob shooting, he comes face to face with Bane for the first time and Bane tells Batman that he is strange. How can a man cloaked in darkness not kill? Bane makes a vow to Batman that one day, Batman will scream for mercy and will scream Bane's name. And then Bane rushes off into the night, leaving Batman pretty confused. Serial murderer serving life in prison and sole surviving volunteer. <laughs> and what a charmer he is. By merely drilling three concentric holes directly into Antonio's cranial cavity, I have created viaducts into the most primitive part of his brain, the limbic system. <laughs> and now I add my super soldier serum, codenamed Venom, to which I add my very own recipe of steroids and toxins. Time to scream. So, as a uh, another instalment of the Nightfall Saga, which we've already had, uh, the Sword of Azrael, and the General kind of was slightly linked to Nightfall. Um, but I thought this was another really interesting instalment, and I thought it was building up the the excitement quite well. I thought the, the laws on the Santa Priscan island were incredibly harsh uh, for a child to inherit the punishment of his father. Very unfair. Um, and you can see why he has so much hatred um, after something like that happening to him. Um, it's interesting, I think, that fear is what Bane has to conquer. And in his vision, it manifests itself as a bat. And... Is he a bit like Bruce Wayne in Batman Begins, perhaps, uh, scared of bats? I like the fear aspect coming into play again with a villain, and um, I thought it was very interesting the way Bane is trying to overcome his fear, and he claims he has no fear by the end of this story. I was interested to learn where the name Bane came from, uh, and the warden said that he's a Bane to everything holy when he simply wouldn't die. Uh, I thought that was quite a cool reason i i always liked his name and i'm glad i've now figured out the mystery of where it came from my only question whilst reading the story was i've always thought of bane to be very educated and whilst i was reading this story i thought how could he be educated after he's been brought up in a prison but that was covered by mr dixon and where did he get all that from well that was answered he spent a lot of time in the prison library and i like the idea he just wants power and he will do anything to achieve it He's aware that having an incredibly big body 
is one of the aspects of having the power, but you've also got to have knowledge as well. And I thought that was really interesting, and it's anything to achieve that power he will do. Um, I was a little bit disappointed with some of his friends. For instance, one of them called Bird. I thought it was a bit of a simple name, simply because he has a bird. Um, but I suppose maybe they're prison names, but I don't know. I didn't enjoy that very much. Uh, there's a pretty awesome moment when he wrestles with a shark when he's unleashed from the prison. As the Americans say, I thought that was quite neat. And I really enjoyed seeing the confusion that Bane had when he witnessed Batman not kill someone, but he sees him save someone. Um, and I was it was interesting to see him... He didn't quite understand how that worked. So he decides he needs to watch Batman more. He doesn't understand this compassion. He thinks Batman should be more ruthless and uh, it's a bit confusing to him so I like the idea and I understand the idea that he wants to sit back watch him work before he makes his move and I really like the line in which Batman says to Bane you're threatening me get in line um, pretty good stuff there but you know, all in all really enjoyed the story great origin for Bane I'm really looking forward to seeing what he's going to do in Nightfall and um, he looks like a real true threat to Batman, a massive one and I can't wait to see the two face off, which will be pretty soon hopefully. So, really good really re recommend this story if you're curious about Bane before the new movie check out The Vengeance of Bane 5 out of 5 Batarangs Welcome to my arena, Batman Prepare to meet your master so we've had all the build-up, everything's been put in place, it's now time to finally get into it. And next time I'll be looking at Batman Nightfall, the first part, which is uh, called The Broken Bats. Now this has been collected into one book, simply The Broken Bat Part 1. Or you could uh, read issues of Batman Comics 491 through to 497 and Detective Comics 659 through to 663. So those are what I'll be covering in the next edition of BBFB, The Broken Bat Part 1. So please do read those, um, keep up with me, and let me know what you're thinking of Nightfall as we go through it. So it's great to be finally getting on with that. I've been looking forward to the whole Nightfall chapter uh, since I started BBFB, and um, I'm really looking forward to it. So please do read along, let me know what you think, and see you next time. I'll now send you back to Dustin and the guys. See ya. So that was Bat Books for Beginners. Make sure you're picking up the next book for the next episode. Also, be sure to check out the website for the previous Bat Books for Beginners and log on to iTunes and look for Bat Books for Beginners on iTunes as well. 20 episodes are posted as you are listening to this. More are coming. And eventually we'll catch up to the point where the episodes for Bat Books for Beginners will be posting one week after the comic cast is live on the site as well. So, if you are interested in that, especially for those of you out there who are getting into the Batman comics and are more interested in the continuity, not necessarily pertaining to the changes that are happening with the, the new DC and the stuff we've talked about in this episode, 
But if you're interested in knowing exactly the order of which events occurred in Batman's history up until essentially this point, until we get some clarification on a number of different events. But for now, Batbooks for Beginners is your answer to kind of get caught up and up to speed with everything that has happened with Batman for up until the point of Nightfall, which is essentially at least the halfway point of everything that we will be covering. So that's not necessarily the halfway point of, you know, like year five or something, but it is the halfway point for all the episodes that we have. So check that out. Let's go over what we'll be covering next time on the podcast. Next time we'll be covering Batman and Robin number one, Batwoman number one, Batman number one, Birds of Prey number one, Catwoman number one, Nightwing number one, Red Hood and the Outlaws number one. So a total of seven issues, a little bit more than this episode. If we have time, we will be sure to have a discussion. So that's everything for this episode. Make sure you're checking out thebatmanuniverse.net for all the latest comic news and movie, TV, merchandise, video game, and general news pertaining to everything in the Batman universe. Make sure you head over to Facebook and Twitter and follow us and like us. As you do that, you'll be able to get updates on whenever something new is posted up to the site. You can surely check out our YouTube page for all kinds of videos pertaining to the Batman universe. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or any discussion points that you would like us to discuss on future episodes, email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. Of course, you can join the forums, become a member. The forums have a ton of new posts every single day. Just be sure to send us an email once you register, notifying us of your actual username as the forums are ridiculously spammed every single day. And that is pretty much it. Make sure you're checking out all the other podcasts that we have to offer from the Batman universe. So this is Dustin. This is Donovan. This is Joe. This is John. This is Stella. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. See you with the next number one. Oh my gosh. Oh my. Nice, strong, manly voices. Where's the girl? Hello. Hello. So she's be picked on this call. You have two girls. Okay. <laughs> Granny <laughs> Flash. All right. <laughs> yes, I did see. You can see. <laughs> <laughs> the There's actually none in this. This uh, yeah, this batch really. So you're kind of lucky, sir. Mr. Gillian in the water hose. Oh gosh, that's okay. true. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's go then. What? That's always the music that starts up when they're happy. Oh. No, it's not. Oh. What are you talking about? This is the Hans Zimmer music. Yes, it is. It sounded like you were doing the. Uh, the music, what is that music to? Uh.
the music that, that not plays in the podcast? Like that, not music. It did not sound like that at all. It sounded like you were doing the. Oh, what is that song? I've heard that song a thousand times. I hear the song in my head, but I cannot think of. interest in the continuity of Batman Bat Books for Beginners is an excellent way for you to get interested in knowing exactly the events since we've that have all our been, best to... that have all been wiped from continuity wah 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 get off that's gonna, that's, that's gonna get edited <laughs> oh! I, knew, I knew it would be I knew it would be I just felt pithy <laughs> <laughs> we've all lost our minds yeah, I think so. Sorry. <laughs> my head is splitting open like the Flashpoint universe. <laughs> oh my god. So is it like yeah. 4.45 for you right now, Joe? Yeah. And I have school tomorrow. And I haven't slept. And... Dude, just you know, there's devotion and there's insanity. I only have my first two lessons. So I can go to those and then come home and sleep questions, comments, or concerns, or discussion. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> zipped a zipper. Wasn't me. I thought I was muted when I got up, sorry. The zipper comments just made me lose my train of thought. <laughs> oh, that was not what did it. I know, but I'm just uh, like, who the fuck? Who's, who's messing with their zipper? <laughs> yeah, I was, I was sitting on a squeaky chair and I got up and moved and it made noise. And I'm sorry. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always contact us at the Batman Universe. Yes. All right. <clears throat> oh man. Okay. Um. That, that was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was fun. And there's more next time. <laughs>